Hi, this is Steve. We've talked about a lot of great films on the cinephiles, but nothing was quite as intimidating as breaking down Citizen Kane. There's so much to talk about in every shot and so much to learn from his use of deep focus, composite shots and special effects to the unique structure of the film, the incredible dialogue, the beautiful sound design, haunting score. And at the heart of it all is the towering, compelling and contradictory character of Kane portrayed in what can only be described as a tour de force performance by the 24-year-old Orson Welles. There's so much to talk about, in fact, that John and I couldn't fit it all into one episode. So this Friday on The Cinephiles, get ready for part one of our exploration of Citizen Kane. And if you want to dig even deeper, we highly recommend the 70th anniversary Blu-ray, which is available on our website at cinephiles.net. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net, where you can also buy any other movie we've ever reviewed. So, that's Citizen Kane, part one, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Toast, Jedediah, to love on my terms. Those are the only terms anybody ever knows. His own. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. And this one has a lot of influence. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Yes. Uh, my name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host, writer, producer here in Los Angeles, California, and lover of all things film, and uh, no film do I love more than the one we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and we are welcoming you back yeah. to our continuing what we are calling the Month of Cain. The Month of Cain, <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, we started this uh, last week. We had just a whole episode devoted to Orson Welles' biography, yeah. and now we're going to jump into what is uh, almost universally considered the greatest film ever made. Yeah, uh, it's constantly like it, it, it constantly battles on the list, uh, but it always seems to come out on the in the end as the number one film. Although recently Vertigo kind of supplanted it, but then now and then Kane came back and took its place again. So it's it's just one of these films that people still in 2017, almost what 76 years later, still revere uh, as an incredible as the greatest film ever made. Well, and this is this is one of the things I was thinking about that's yeah. so unique. If you went out and you said, "Let's make a list of the greatest novels of all time," yeah, you would have some people would come up with Les Miserables, and some people would tell Two Cities, and some mm -hmm. people Huckleberry Finn, and some people would be you know the Old Man in the Sea or whatever. You know, there'd be a huge long list, and right. everyone would come up with it differently. If you said, "What's the greatest play?" The same right. thing. If you even said, "What's the greatest Shakespeare play?" You sure. would have arguments about which one is the greatest one. If you said the greatest pop song, the greatest symphony, same thing, mm -hmm. and yet. Over and over again, Citizen Kane tops these lists. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Every once in a while, like Vertigo will pop up on top, or Godfather, or Lord of Arabia, or one of these other ones. But but Citizen Kane is it's it's always a surprise. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is unique in any art form I can think of. Yeah. That we keep coming back to this film. And it comes with an incredible amount of baggage in its background. And an incredible amount of reverence from people who are still discovering it and still cited as an influence to them, critics and filmmakers and people who love film and cinephiles and what have you. They still are blown away by what this film can do to them and what this, how the timeless this film feels, even though it's very obviously of its time, it's still incredibly timeless. And the story itself still resonates with us, this idea of a man 
of incredible power who is constantly unknowable even by the people closest to him well and it remains unique yeah you know there's just isn't anything like citizen kane there there are you know it's like if you talk about star wars you talk about the you know we can make comparisons with the godfather and goodfellas and things like that but Mm -hmm. citizen kane is just it's in its own world yeah and it's one that's unremakeable oh like you like if anyone was to talk if studio was even to broach the idea of remaking this film i think people would in mass storm the castle and set that studio on fire. Like, I just think it's not, it's not one of these well, films. Let's hope they sh- never do it. Yes, well, that's right. It's very dangerous. <laughs> well, you know, the French Revolution would, fear of <laughs> the French Revolution. And so to me, that's just, I, I think it's just one of those ones that you, you, you can't, like even Seven Samurai, which I consider my second favorite film ever made, was remade, in essence, right. in, for America. So uh, this is one of those films that's just untouchable. Well, Seven Samurai, I mean, the difference, part of the difference is, is that Seven Samurai is a high concept movie mm-hmm. where the idea is very simple. Yeah. And you go like, oh, there are these seven people that get hired to protect this place. Well, we can replicate that in all sorts of ways. Right. Kane. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Right. Do you remember when you first saw it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I talked about this on numerous podcasts. For me, this is the film that turned it around and turned me into a cinephile, for lack of a better term. Uh, I was, I had always like enjoyed films. I always liked films, but um, uh, one, I think it was my junior year in, in high school, I was homesick. Um, my mom had stopped off in the video world in the morning. I'd given her a list of movies I wanted to watch during the day. And she had gotten the VHSs for me, uh, before she went to work. So it was Citizen Kane, uh, Great White Hope. Oh, wow. And, uh, I can't remember what the third one was. It might've been broadcast news. So it's a fascinating triple feature. Yeah. Well, because I was getting into, so I was reading these articles, right? right. Because I was like, why do I love films so much? Why do I love films so much? And I started to explore why. So I would find these like newspaper articles or magazine articles. And you could go to the, you could go to the library and microfiche and look up, you know, and read stuff there, or you could see references and old newspaper articles and stuff. So to me, I was developing my knowledge of film and everyone that I, everything that I read said, Citizen Kane is the greatest film I've ever made. So to me, I'm like, I have to see for myself. What so yeah. yeah, and so that afternoon, and I built up to it all day because I was like, I gotta, I gotta be ready mentally, and so, I, and then I watched it, and I was just floored, just floored. I put it in, and or I rewound it, and watched it again, uh, and it was one that um, just completely changed everything around for me because I understood for the first time ever, like why I love film and what it is about film that I love so much. And it just began my lifelong uh, love of film, which still exists today very powerfully. Yeah, I think I probably watched it about the same age. It was the end of high school. Mm. And I'd heard the same thing. I had heard, like, this is the greatest film. I remember I watched it the first time. And it's hard to take in. I think I had a, no. a like like, more of a, wow, that was really something. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> and then probably watch it two or three more times, you know, through college. Yeah. And then I remember when the 50th anniversary happened. Oh, yeah. And I got that box set as right. a gift with the VHS that has the big poster, which is still hanging in my office. Yep. And I have it framed in the closet. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yep. I, I, I knew that you had it too. Yep. And, and that's when I started to get the books. And that's when I started to look into Orson Welles. And this is the thing about Welles and Kane is that it makes you want to dig in. Oh, yeah. It makes you want to know more. Mm-hmm. It's not like a movie where you just kind of let it wash over you, mm-hmm. and then you go away. It's sort of like, well, what is all that? I want to explore. Right. Um, and now here it is, you know, it's 30 years after I first saw it, mm-hmm. and I'm still exploring. Oh, yeah. I'm still, and I still, I've learned so much about 
Kane in the last couple of weeks that I never knew. <laughs> and I ta- and I taught this in class. Yeah. And yet I now I know much more than I knew before. Oh, I can yeah. never read enough. Yeah. Like I've gone to I've, I, any book that mentions Kane, I will and has Orson Welles as part of it, I will buy. Uh and I will read because I always think maybe I've heard all I can hear and then there's someone who is like a second AD and something it gives right. some story about having been on the film set. And it's a it's a film that constantly fascinates people and people want to come back to read about everything that happened about this film because the film almost never got made always almost never seen the light had almost well almost never saw the light of day yeah what could have been destroyed crushed burnt the prints could have been burnt there were yep. all kinds of dangers uh for this film and probably some of it legendary to build up the legend of citizen kane some but, of it yeah a lot of but it still yeah. a lot of it was true right exactly so once you open it it's a Pandora's box. There's so much in there that you can get sucked in and go into a deep dive about the film before you even watch the film, just the film yeah. itself. Well, know? this is one of those like Jaws, like Apocalypse Now that mm. we've talked about before, where the story of the making of the film yeah. is as fascinating as the film itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And so let's let's get into that. Now, we talked a lot about Orson Welles in our previous mm-hmm. podcast, mm-hmm. but I want to take up his story sort of where we skipped over, okay. which is where he comes to Hollywood, Yeah, is that he comes to Hollywood with this contract that is unlike anything that had ever been seen since maybe dw griffith which is the you know you are going to get total control over your film at rko Mm -hmm. you know final cut and of course even with someone like dw griffith who was so powerful in the teens and early 20s is that well he got there by making films orson never made a film before 24 year old kid has never made a film and he's handed basically the keys to the castle. Yeah, and because he had such a reputation coming out of like we'd spoken about on the other episode uh, his reputation on on stage and Shakespeare and seeing these revolutionary interpretations of Shakespeare works his connections with the people who had come to watch his plays, you know, so he was very tied into the arts community all the way up to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know so he had a lot of connections before he walked through the door of Hollywood. Now I don't think he could have gotten away with this with like Warner Brothers or Columbia or MGM or anything like that. It had to be a smaller but still major studio right. in RKO Radio Pictures. They were trying to put their brand, they were trying to really establish themselves as kind of like the alternative place right. to come and make film. Uh, in essence, a glorified independent film studio. And so they gave him Final Cut as a way of saying, look, we this is how we respect artists. This is how we view artists and to attract them. And Man, what a decision that ended up being. Yeah, know? in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Probably one of the worst decisions RKO ever made. Probably. Although we're happy that they did it. We all, yes. Yeah. We, we, I, I don't think we'd have the film community now if he ha- they hadn't made that decision. Um, and the first film he wanted to make was Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Can- Conrad right. uh, book. And he wanted to do it all from like POV shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a... I have this with my student filmmakers all the time, and it's a classic idea that sounds really great and it's really terrible. <laughs> and so I'm really glad he didn't make that movie. Yeah. Um, and then he meets uh, Herman Mankiewicz, um, who was a person who used to go to San Simeon and knew William Randolph Hearst and was a drinking buddy with Marion Davies mm-hmm. and starts hearing these stories about Hearst and San Simeon, and that's how they find what their movie's going to be. Yeah. Which originally they're going to call American. Right. Yeah, that's right. the original title for Citizen, Citizen what, Kane. What an interesting decision by Mankiewicz to kind of risk the friendship, the very powerful friendship of Hearst, and also the very intimate friendship of Marion Davies by writing this film with Orson Welles. Well, and risk his whole career. Yes. I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, like, this is as powerful a person in the country in terms of media. Yeah. Um, And, you know, Herman Mankiewicz was a drunk and a 
uh, you know, had a lot of issues. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, a frustrated genius probably in a lot of ways. Sure. And As you, most writers probably are. Um, certainly that's how I feel. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, and you have someone like Wells come and sweet talk you and say, no, you can do this. I mean, that's, that's a powerful force yeah. to come in. And, and you can't overestimate that the boy wonder genius of this guy swooping in. And, and, you know, when you see Wells in the movie, he is so dashing. He's so good looking. He's so youthful. It's yeah. powerfully youthful. Who could resist a guy like this? You know? Well, we, so, we, we see him seduce people in the film over and over again. Yes. And, and we that sure is real. You know, yeah. uh, as he's seducing like actors and people he's worked with, he's seducing women like yeah. Dolores Del Rio. He had been married, and now is when he's going to have his one of his first right, major affairs. affairs with Dolores Del Very Rio. Very public. Very public. Yeah. Um, so he's he brings his Mercury Theater actors mm -hmm. from New York. So almost all of the actors we see in this film are really new to film. Mm -hmm. um, and he also brings Bernard Herrmann, his amazing composer, who goes on to be Hitchcock's main composer and is composing the last thing he does is Taxi Driver for Martin Scorsese. Right. That's Herrmann's last film. So he brings them. But then the the, the one of the – and, of course, John Houseman, who I think is one of the people that doesn't get the respect that he really deserves for what, this film. Absolutely. And one of the unsung heroes, not only of the absolutely. film, but of Wells' life yeah. and career. And they had a very tempestuous relationship. Like apparently Wells at one point threw a like a coffee maker at him in a, <laughs> when he freaked out in Chasen's, which is the which is the inspiration for the scene where he wrecks uh, oh. the bedroom. Oh, yeah. yeah, Houseman says, "Let's put that. We need to put that in the movie." Wow. And they pressure Wells to to create that scene. Oh, yeah. Um, and but the big addition that we get is Greg Toland. Oh yes, the cinematographer. Our cinematographer Greg Toland was known as Papa. And he was the great cinematographer of the time. Did, mm -hmm. you know, Grapes of Wrath and all these John Ford films. And, I mean, he is the man. Mm -hmm. And he decides he wants to work with Orson Welles. Yeah. The story I heard is that someone was in there interviewing with Welles in his office. Because we had, obviously, he was set up at studio. Walks out, sees Greg Tolan with his equipment sitting in the waiting area. Greg Tolan yeah. sitting in the waiting area. And he says, what are you doing here? He says, I'm here to interview for the job, a cinematographer for the film. I want to work with Orson Welles. The guy says, what? Why? Why are you interviewing? Why would you want to work? And he said, because I've mastered everything that I can master at this point. I mean, some version of that with the directors. I want to work with a, a director who will come up with a new way to shoot a film that'll challenge me and make me expand as a cinematographer. Yeah. And that tells you why... He was so good at what he did because he understood that what he was doing was an art form. And the and uh, comfort is the enemy of progress. Comfort is the enemy of greatness. Right. And so he knew to push himself. He had to challenge himself to work with a new guy who would see new ways to shoot film. And right. damn if it didn't happen. Because Orson didn't know what was possible. Right, of course. He had no idea how films were supposed to be made. And so when he said, I want to do this, then it was like Tolan and a whole bunch of technicians and a whole bunch of uh, inventors had to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? Yeah. Um, there's a great story that Wells tells, as all his stories are great of course, stories, yes. um, about Tolan that I, I really love. And whether or not this is true, I don't know, but it, the story is so great, which is that apparently, according to Wells, Tolan and all his crew, they all worked in suits. You know, they all wore jackets and ties. Oh, ties. wow. You know, which is a more formal era back yeah, then. Yeah, you're right. You could see that in the in the clips behind the scenes stuff. But yeah. but but thinking about like people climbing up on ladders and moving all this equipment, they're all wearing jackets and ties. And Tolan believed, according to Wells, that the set should be a very quiet place. Mm -hmm. And so 
And one of the things he did with his crew that he worked with over and over again was to develop hand signals. So he had all these hand signals of like things to do so that he didn't have to speak. Wow. They could do things silently so that all the, the director and the actors, those would only be the pe two people talking. Right. Now, Wells, from his theater background, he had always hung lights and, and designed the lighting and just been involved in all that. So when he shows up on the movie set for the first time, he just naturally starts <laughs> saying, put that light over there and move that light over there and shine that here. Oh, yes. I know this story. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and of course, he doesn't really know how lighting for film works because mm -hmm. it isn't really what you see through your eye. It's, it's very different in terms of the, the, what stop you're on and, right. and what kind of film stock you have and things like that. So Toland is walking behind Wells and giving hand signals to the crew to correct what Wells is doing and make make his thing work for film. Yeah. And and Wells has no idea this is going on. He just is going, wow, this is all looking great. I'm a genius, which is, of course, <laughs> what he thinks of himself anyway. Right. And about a week into shooting, one of Toland's crew members finally says, excuse me, Mr. Wells, technically it's, it's Mr. Toland's job to set the lights. And Wells is embarrassed and just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And Toland is furious. Yes, yes he is. Furious because he's like, what are you doing? I was having so so much fun you ruined it mm -hmm. this was so exciting and that seems like part of what this relationship was is yeah. this boy genius who's just trying everything in the world and this mature incredibly technically skilled guy mm -hmm. figuring out how to make it work yeah and what what uh is the word magnanimous well how, how what magnanimity magnanimity i don't know what the word is magnanimity magnanimity that of, is a hard of word to toland say. yeah to to have that kind of thing where he wasn't egotistical or arrogant about his knowledge that he was be he would be willing to follow behind Wells and just you know kind of let figure things out with his crew and let him do whatever he wanted to do because he could pick up something he might learn something yeah. and that's incredible man and from what I understand for the the extension of that story is that no one was allowed to talk to Wells on Tolan's crew without Tolan's permission yeah. from that point forward because Tolan would get super upset if you ever did that because he wanted it to be very pure experience. Well, and this is something, and again, it's something I teach my students is there is a hierarchy on a movie set. Yeah. And although I don't believe in a complete adherence to hierarchy because it gets a little stiff, but in general, there are people that shouldn't be talking to the director. Yeah, You know, things need to go through a certain kind of chain and command in a certain way because some of these relationships are delicate yeah. and there's a time efficiency that has to happen. One other thing they did, by the way, is they show up and, they, and they're in pre-production and Wells goes to the studio and says, listen, could could I have a couple of days to do camera tests because I've never been on a movie set before and I just need a little practice and, you know, Tolan and I are going to go just shoot stuff so I can learn. And they go, oh yeah, sure. And of course, what did Wells do? But he went and started shooting the movie. So, right. so he's two or three days ahead of schedule, um, which, you know, and he's a con man. Yeah. And, he, and that's something you'll see from Wells for the rest of his career. Yeah. And Robert you know? Wise talks about this in one of the special features on the Blu-ray uh, in one of his interviews. He says... And Robert Wise is the editor of the film. He interviewed to be another film because Wells didn't want the editor that they assigned him because thought the editor was too old. He wanted someone young with him to edit at the same age who understood what he was trying to do with the film. And Wise um, said when he got called in by his boss to be told about the interview that his boss told him, "You can't, you, you won't believe what Orson what Orson did." And he, the exact story he said, right. he shot these things, and, and people realized that he was actually shooting the movie. Yeah, and by shooting the scenes to finish scenes like that. Um, they were uh, the studio. It convinced the studio to greenlight the film, and 
Wise was immediately thrown on as the editor because they knew the pace that Wells wanted to go at. They needed someone young who could keep up with him and edit as he went along. So it's just interesting. So fascinating. So I have a fairly quick story just because I know someone who did exactly this kind of thing. Yeah. So Hoover, who you've heard me talk about oh, yeah. many times. Um, so he was working for ABC and they were going to shoot in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, a climbing film in China. To Ooh. climb some famous mountain. Interesting. Because Hoover was a world-class uh, mountain climber. Mm -hmm. And China was sort of, China's just starting to open up. And there had just been a production that had filmed in China. And the Chinese government realized they this company had a lot of money. And they didn't get enough money out of them. Mm -hmm. So Hoover's on a phone call with the president of ABC. And they're talking to the people who run this province in China. And they say, well, when you come and shoot here, you're going to have to hire this many yaks and this many right. peasants and this many people to carry equipment. And you have to buy all your stuff from here and all your food from here. And and it's just tens and tens of thousands of dollars uh, to shoot it. And, and Hoover on the phone uh, is saying, oh yeah, great. No, no, we don't need 20 yaks. We're going to need 50 yaks and we're going to need this and we're going to need more of that. And the president who's also on the phone call is going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do this. And they gets to the end of the call and then Hoover says, but listen, we do need one thing, which is we're going to need to fly out with four or five people and just do a reconnaissance and check the location. But And then we'll come out and we'll buy all the yaks and all the transportation, everything like that. And they say, okay. And Hoover flies out with five people, shoots the film and goes home. Oh my God. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so oh, oh, sneaky. He is a sneaky guy. Jesus. All right. <laughs> Shall we get into Citizen Kane? Yeah, let's do it. We open with a Mercury production by Orson Welles. Mm. And then those big titles. Yeah, man. That is bold. Right? You know what it reminded me of is the Rocky title. Oh, yeah. That big, huge text. That is a Point. big thing you're putting out about mm -hmm. what you think your film is. Mm -hmm. um, and we go into the opening sequence. And the first thing we hear is that Bernard Herrmann score. Yeah. I think his music sounds like nothing that had been in film up to this point. You know, I think that's fair. Um, if you listen to the silent movie scores, if you listen to like some of the stuff we listened to at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm -hmm. or Robin Hood, very, very different from this sort of modern, dissonant, heavy score. Mm -hmm. As we look at no trespassing in a chain link fence, that is a forbidding beginning to a film. Yeah, immediately we sense the darkness just from the beginning because we're coming out. The black frame isn't it is it's a dissolve into that right, so it lets you know that it's it's giving you a window into this, right. but it's a very dark window. You know, yeah, the trespassing sign is dirty. All of yeah. it is just just unkempt. And we move into this bleak, oh. giant castle of Xanadu. That is decrepit and falling apart and dirty and, you know, it's you know an expensive luxury gone to waste. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny. One of the things uh, Roger Ebert says, he does a great commentary track on the movie, mm -hmm. is that this is as much a special effect film as Star Wars is. <laughs> and this opening, this is all special effects. These are all matte paintings and composite shots. Almost none of this is real. Right. Um, and we have this thing, which which we talk about in the commentary track, which is this idea of eye trace, that this, the light that's in that window stays in the same spot in the frame in every one of these dissolves. So your eyes continue being, being pulled there. Yeah, yeah. But I love the shots of, of you know, like the canoes out there right. in the water uh, and the monkeys. Zoo, yeah. The monkeys. And because it echoes what uh, Leland's going to say to him later, 
Yeah, I suppose you'll, I don't know what you'll do. Go out in the jungle and lord over the monkeys, I guess. Which is also reference right. to Heart of Darkness, which is also, there's oh, all yeah. these little subtle things thrown in throughout the movie. Oh, lorded over the monkeys. Right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, all that kind of point. stuff is in there. Yeah. So I, I love that we see the monkeys right from the beginning because that's going to come into play later. Well, this is the thing. So something that has come up over and over and over again in the cinephiles yeah. is that great films have tremendous attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And no film, I think, has more attention to detail than Citizen Kane. Every single frame, there is something in there that's some... And I don't know how they thought about all these things. Because they're all choices. Now, these are not accidents, you know? Um, and, and like that monkey one, that's a, that's a really interesting one that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And we move in and there's this tremendous build in music to a light going out. I mean, how often is a light going out as dramatic <laughs> as that light is going out in this film? Uh, and then the light comes back on and we're inside. And it slowly comes back. Yeah. It like creeps back on. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And we go to a close-up of a snow globe. Yeah. And that lips and that mustache and the word, the first word of the film is Rosebud. So one of the things about this film. Yes. The daring choice of Orson Welles to take on William Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. And that... I mean, that is really a bold thing to do. And one of the things that I was thinking about, I think this is in one of the documentaries, is that controversy had always been good for Orson Welles. Yeah. You know, War of the Worlds, Voodoo Macbeth, yeah. Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Though He liked to go after things, and mm-hmm. the controversy would show him, throw him in the spotlight, and that worked really well. And maybe that's why he chose to go after Hearst. I think that's in his nature. Yeah. It's in his nature to thumb his nose at establishment. He was one of those guys... Because a young man, he was constantly challenged. From when he was a kid in in, in preparatory school, yeah. he would challenge his headmaster. You know, we talked about uh, on the conversation, like he went to Dublin and claimed to right. be this. So he challenged the into uh, what should what is allowed, what is not allowed at the Gate Theater in Dublin. It was a very legendary theater. So he was constantly pushing the boundaries as a right. young or man. Or Cradle Will Rock. Or Cradle Will Rock, right? Yeah, Those, w- w- yeah bringing that f- that play to fruition. Like he's constantly fighting against the authority or what he seems sees as the establishment and so why wouldn't he do this do you know what i'm saying right. uh, to go and and immediately come go after hearst and uh and tell his life story in such well, a stark it, way it, and the reason that i bring this up now is what is this choice of the word rosebud yeah is that i think if he had not used this particular phrase things might have gone very differently because mm-hmm. According to Herman Mankiewicz, what he told Wells is that the term Rosebud was the one that William Randolph Hearst used for his mistress, Marion Davies' private area. Yes. And that is where the term Rosebud comes from. And so the idea of using that word as the center of your film is, you know, it's giving the finger to one of the most powerful people in the world and exposing, literally, the most intimate place of their private lives i mean audacious it's audacious man it's 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 be i would say it's beyond audacious it's mean Ooh, you know okay i mean that that's not necessary because that's not his public life you're attacking right right, right. you know what i mean like 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 doing a you know doing a film about a a power a a powerful character that makes references to a very public person who's made a lot of very public things i have no problem with that at all Going into their bedroom and taking an intimate, there's no purpose to it. You know what I mean? It could have been that there could have been any word. It's an inside joke meant to embarrass Hurst. 
and Davies. And Wells said later on that he regretted doing it because of Marion Davies, not because of Hearst. And I think that's fair because yeah. Hearst was a complete asshole who who destroyed many people and right. ruined a lot of lives by with his uh, empire and his uh, hubris. And so for him to attack Hearst is different than attacking Marion Davies, who was a woman who was an actress who fell in love with him, who sacrificed, you know, her, her money for him her her career. She really loved him. And so by all accounts, she was considered a very sweet, loving, incredible person. Yeah. Yeah, So to attack someone innocent like that in, you know, comparatively innocent like that was where the mistake was made. If in the long run, right. In which Wells cops do later on in his life. Yeah. But so he says, Rosebud, it's our first word of the film. Mm -hmm. The snow globe falls out of his hand, shatters on the floor. We get this amazing reflective, um, broken glass warp shot of the nurse entering the space, which is just a fascinating shot. And then she places the hands over the body. Mm. And that is the death of Charles Foster Kane. Right. And the light goes out again. And the light goes out again. So so to me, the light going out the first time is him taking his last breath, like his near death, taking his last breath is the light coming on again, saying Rosebud. It's a return mm. to innocence. For me, that's uh, what that is. It's a return back sure. to that one special moment in his life, his last special moment in his life before all this stuff was warped uh, in his upbringing uh, and giving one last breath before he dies. Um, and I love that the fact that the snow is moving. Yeah. So the snow wouldn't be moving if he hadn't shook it in some yep. way. That's true. Absolutely. So I think he shook it. You see the snow moving. He says it, then drops it. Because he's seeing what was his last shot of his own life, which is what we see later on in the film, uh, where he's you know he's out there with the sled, and it's snowing, right. and he's there at the boarding house and all that kind of jazz. Uh, and so for him, it's his last moment, you know, and he lets it go. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And after this slow, somber, quiet build to this man's very somber death, mm-hmm. we go to News on the Mark. <laughs> And suddenly we're transported into this newsreel with this music going, and it's a complete, complete shift of tone. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we start with, and it's interesting too because like it very much follows a structure of the obituary. Mm-hmm. Of we, you start with the death, and then you kind of go back through the life, right? And you return back to the death, and it, it is a perfectly done um, newsreel. And part of the reason it's perfectly done is the RKO newsreel people edited it. They oh, created. That this. makes sense. Yeah, Orson said, "Here, here is what we're going to do," mm-hmm. and all of the footage that's there is just RKO stock footage. I've got something I want to ask you all the way at the end of this. Okay. About the beginning. But we'll talk we'll I'll ask you when we get to the end. To but, the end of the film. Yeah. To the end of the okay. film. Okay. But let's keep going. We'll, we're going to put a Yeah, we'll put, put a, a note, put a flag there. That we're going to come back to something. But um, I I, lo- I love the uh, the love the immediate cut, uh, cut rather and then we're just like what a different score and we're we're immediately brought into this world of of Charles Foster Kane and we're giving exposition. We're given exposition. Straight up exposition. Yeah, we don't need dialogue. We don't need it's all there in a voiceover. It's a very crafty way to give exposition, especially for people at the time in 1941 who were used to these right. type of newsreels that would tell them what was going on in the war, what was going on overseas with any other thing that was happening. They would see these newsreels before the actual movie. So I wonder if people were like, wait, wait, what's this in the middle of the film? Sure. Whatever, you know, so or at the beginning of the film. So you have that. And it's it's just a great way to show you this man's and then show you what you're going to see, right. the stages of Charles Foster Kane, different ages all through the film. Well, it, it's so funny because this is, first of all, exactly what I tell my students never to do, <laughs> which is to front load exposition. Right. Like, you never want to just hit your audience with, here's a whole bunch of information right at the beginning of your movie. Yeah, right. This is exactly wrong. And yet, of course, this is, you know, the greatest film ever made and it works perfectly. And the other thing it does is, like, we're going to have a very chaotic movie that's going to jump back and forth in time. And we're going to move in and out of different stories from different perspectives. And this gives you the roadmap. Yeah. We find out, essentially, we're told the whole plot. Every single thing that happens in the film, yeah. we see happen in this newsreel footage. Yeah. And then, so we know exactly the whole story of the guy's life. And now we're going to see see what it really is and feel it later on. It's a really fascinating way to set up a film. Exactly. And it's told in such a vibrant way, but also an emotionless way. You know, it's like, this is what's happening in this. So, and you see him change in, in tone. And the guy who does the voiceover is fantastic. I've yet to remember who does the voiceover. It's William Allen. It's it's, the, is it really? It's William Allen who plays the, the reporter. Yeah. He does a great job, right? This. My gosh. Yeah. Um, well, these are the radio. I mean, these yeah. part of when you hire a bunch of people who are radio actors, yeah. they do different voices, you That's know? That's great. I love when he goes, first support. <laughs> then denounce. Yeah. And then he, and then uh, when they talk about the, the mistress, Susan Alexander, shame. And then they and there's a quick cut. So they only let you exist for just a couple of seconds yep. in the down parts of his life, and then immediately they're off to the more exciting parts of his life. Because this is what you do with a great man. You don't dwell on the negative stuff when you're giving his life story, her life story. You really focus on the incredible right. achievements that they were able to do. Um and, and it's interesting too, like all of because it's all stock footage, yeah. None of the shots of Xanadu match. They're all different buildings. Yes, yes. Shot yes. different place. You know, and it's like <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You know, and we have these great shots of elephants being moved and buildings yeah. being built and, you know, ships going and all this stuff. And it's all just the stock footage from the newsreel guys, yeah. you know. Um, and we see our first shot of Wells in the paper and we see him in his makeup. Mm-hmm. And we see the, you know, like things like the guys on the roller skates in front of the closed yeah. um, newspaper office. We see the graphics of the radio station as his empire is building. We see, we find out that he's... Wealth comes from the Colorado Colorado load from this mining, yep. which is also that's where Hearst money comes from. Yep. I mean, the parallels to Hearst. There's tons. What the fascinating things is that this very much is William Randolph Hearst, yeah. and this really isn't. William yeah, Randolph yeah, Hearst, exactly. You know, but in terms of the facts of his life, a lot of it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things about this is that 
particularly because of this newsreel, it feels like we're in a big budget movie. Mm-hmm. But this is not a big budget movie. Right. It's a small budget movie that's really made to look big through some really, really smart filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Thatcher, who's George Kalouris, who is Kane's sort of uh, guardian, banker, uh, talking to Congress. And, and he... And, and, and by the way, to make some of this footage match the newsreel footage, uh, Robert Wise took the negative and dragged it around the floor of the studio to get it all scratched up. <laughs> um, um, and he says um, about, well, this is our first real statement we hear about uh, Kane and Thatcher says, Mr. Charles Foster Kane, in every essence of his social beliefs and by the dangerous manner in which he has persistently attacked the American traditions of private property, initiative and opportunity for advancement is in fact nothing more or less than a communist. So that's who Kane is. He's a communist. Seems all summed up. Right. And then we go to uh, a, a big rally, which again is stock footage. And the only thing that they shot for this is one guy in a low <laughs> angle shot. But we feel like we're at a big rally. Yeah. And he says, He is today what he has always been and always will be a fascist. Fascist, yeah. An immediate contradiction in who this guy is. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this relates to the marketing materials because the marketing materials, the trailer, the uh posters, the cards they would give out back then, he's he's a he's a heel, he's a hero. You yeah. see the different people from the movie yelling out things, you know, from from both sides, you know. So it's very interesting. And if you watch the three and a half minute minute movie trailer, it's different people giving their points, their of, views points of view of who Kane is, and it varies depending on the person. Um and then at the end, you're left with this idea. It leaves you that you're going to see a movie that you will not know who this person really is. Well, and this goes to you know something you said over and over again. Yeah. Every film is a mystery, and Kane, maybe more than any of them, yeah. the mystery is who is Kane, right. and that is what we are establishing right now. Yeah. You know, we hear about him urging a country into war, keeping them out of other wars, supporting one president. He's hated by some. He's loved by others. You know, this is a guy that creates controversy and even the great shots of him with Hitler and Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, (laughs) you see that he's just part of history. And then we see we find out about he was married once to the niece of a president and that that ended in scandal. His political career ended in scandal. And then he married his second wife, who was a singer, Mm -hmm. built the Chicago Opera House for her, which cost three million dollars and then built Xanadu. Xanadu cost no man can say. Much, you know, like the cost. No man knows. Yeah. yeah, we and we hear that the in the depression that his papers closed. We hear right. all this stuff about him, mm-hmm. and that he ended up sort of alone and lost. And at the end of the newsreel, we have this footage that really seems like spy footage. Yeah, found filmed footage. of him. Found footage mm-hmm. filmed of him as he's being pushed around in the wheelchair, mm-hmm. looking like a very sad, old, lonely man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because when we're recording this, Steve, there's been that footage that came out of people like. Catching Trump on the golf course. And oh, right. It's very familiar to the same to that video. Mm. It's very look at seventy years later. We're still doing the same thing, sneaking off and taking shots of people who are trying to hide stuff. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. And by the way, someone one of the people that's one of the heroes of this is Maurice Speederman. Mm-hmm. I think it's the makeup artist. Oh yeah. And oh, he my is. God. You know. Right. It's amazing what we see because we've got to remember he's a twenty four year old guy. Yeah. Who is a thin, not thin at the time, good looking guy, mm-hmm. and they make him in 10, 15 different ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing. And, uh, and then the end comes to Charles Foster Kane. And we see his uh, his name go on the, the the board at Times Square, which again is a composite shot. Mm-hmm. All these are special effects. <laughs> and 
that's the end of our newsreel. Mm-hmm. And now we're in, and, and the, the movie shifts. So we had one tone at the beginning yeah. where we had this slow, somber thing. We had this bright, fast-paced newsreel. And now we're in this space where the newsreel has just been projected, which is all backlit and smoke-filled mm-hmm. and silhouetted. And we hear the guys making the newsreel talking about delaying it because they haven't really gotten it yet. Yeah. All we saw on that screen was that Charles Foster Kane is dead. I know that. I read the paper. Yeah. <laughs> you see, Tom, it isn't enough to tell us what a man did. You've got to tell us who he was. And this scene, by the way, is the scene that they shot when they were shooting test footage. Oh. This is the uh, this is the camera test. No wonder all the actors, or most of the actors that you're going to see in the film, are sitting there, including Joseph Cotton, are yeah. all sitting around George Kaloris, they're all sitting around there. Yep. Well, and I think, it, by the way, I also think it's interesting that shooting this scene, this silhouetted scene, as your camera test footage, yeah. interesting that a guy who came from radio, <laughs> the first scene he chooses to shoot is one where you really don't see people's faces. It's really a radio scene. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're really about hearing voices. Yep. You only, you can only see it now because it's HD, right? So you can, you can, you can brighten up the screen now and you can see all the right. faces, or you can try to, most of the faces in the scene. But yeah, when people were actually seeing this in the film... I, I'm sure they didn't see. Well, this this things. is a sign of you should. If you can't see all their faces, then your television is not adjusted properly, <laughs> and you need to get your and you need to adjust it correctly. No. All right, but go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I don't like anything to be hidden from me. It's right. <laughs> a true thing. You you don't know the power of good blacks on your screen, sir. <laughs> I will come over and adjust your TV, and you'll see the difference. All right. Um. And and we get into this question of like, how can we show uh something new about Charles Foster Kane. Right. And the subject comes up of Rosebud. Mm. Maybe that's going to tell us something. His last words, Rosebud. Mm. Here's a man that could have been president who was as loved and hated and as talked about as any man in our time. But when he comes to die, he's got something on his mind called Rosebud. Now, what does that mean? That's the movie. Yep. That's the whole movie Mm -hmm. in this sentence. What does it mean? Can finding out about this word tell us something about the man? Yeah. And we're going to spend our whole movie trying to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he assigns his porter, Mr. Tompkins, played by William Allen, go out and talk to everybody who loved him, everyone who hated his guts, and see if you can find out what Rosebud is. I like his line because he's like, uh... Rosebud, dead or alive, it'll probably turn out to be a very simple thing. So we go to what we, is going to be our first interview. We're going to meet Susan Alexander Kane. Yeah. And, you know, and this is the thing the love paid to every single detail. How are we going to enter this scene? We're going to come in through the roof, yeah. go down towards the skylight. And by the way, this is not a model. This is full size. Incredible. And that uh, sign, there's like the kind of neon sign, splits in two so the camera can go through it. Uh, and that's the trick. And then we kind of do these dissolves that are covered by lightning flashes as we get down in to see Susan Alexander Kane. It's a gorgeous shot. Yeah. And there's the great Dorothy Comingore. And I think, you know, it's it, one of the sad things about this film is with the exception of Joseph Cotton, none of these people really become stars. Well, they all work. Right. Like, uh, Collins is already a star from radio. Right. Willie Milan keeps working up until he's in St. Yeah. Elsewhere. What the, the one who plays his mom. Agnes Moorhead. Agnes Moorhead keeps working into Bewitched. They all work. Yeah, they all work, but no one becomes a star. No, You're right. Cotton's the only one that becomes a star. And Cotton's only a star for a little while, right. and then he recedes back into the background. So yeah, but Common Gore was the one that people thought was going to really come out of this and and be and Wells does too in all the promotions for it. He says, you know, uh, I'm saying her name for the first time, but. Trust me, you're going to know her name 
by the time this and he over. apparently does this really interesting thing which he builds her up publicly yeah. and he really you know seduces her to be on the film mm-hmm. and then he is brutal to her throughout the entire filming like really rips her to pieces he wants her insecure and nervous and that's how he gets his performance out of her yeah you know um and she by the way was discovered by charlie chaplin oh wow yeah that's that's okay. who who first discovered her um yeah he was he was brutal yeah and uh uh Mr. Tompkins comes in, sits down in front of uh, Susan Alexander. Who told you you could sit down and then just get out? Yeah. Um, and it's funny, this set that we're in, this was a standing Western set on the RKO lot. <laughs> they just said, okay, she's in a Western bar. Yeah. Because the thing about Wells, and one of the things I love about him, he's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's He's not a guy who goes, build me the greatest set in the world he's like how can i figure out how to do this for the money i got right you know which will come into play for the rest of his the rest life he, yeah because yeah, it's yeah. always going to be hard yeah but i love this scene because it, inter- it introduces us to susan in a way and, and if you're watching it for the first time you know this person has something to do with his life if you remember her from the newspaper shots in the news on the march reel right. and her treatment of tompkins is again this idea that we're not going to get all the answers we want when we want them. We're going to get them when they're presented. And she, he's like, but we assume he's going to ask a question. She's going to tell stories, and she says, "Who told you to sit down?" And then she kicks him out because she's not ready to talk about right. it yet, right? And obviously, this is going to come back later. They're going to meet up again later. But at that time, she's still dealing with the death of him. It's still too soon. She's still grieving. She's been drinking. God knows for how long she's been drinking. The highballs, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And then you know, Tompkins gets up and has to talk to that guy. You know, the, well, who, and. and and this is the thing. She is one of the few people we're going to meet mm-hmm. who genuinely loved him. Yeah. And I think that shows in the scene. Absolutely. As much as she has every reason to hate him. Yeah. She also loved him. She's still destroyed by his death. Yeah. Um, and Tompkins goes over to this phone booth, which isn't a real phone booth. It's this very strange <laughs> set thing. Yeah. And we have, uh, and he's silhouetted. And he's a guy, we're going to see the back of his head and the silhouette of him throughout the whole film. We almost never get a clear shot of his face. Mm-hmm. And and the uh, waiter comes over and says, you know. Well, until he died, she'd just as soon talk about Mr. Kane as about any. Hello. Sooner. <laughs> and again, peopled by great, great character actors. Yep. And we see this shot where we have Tompkins in the foreground, silhouetted. We have the waiter in the midground, and uh, Susan Alexander Kane is in the background, still in focus in a pool of light. It is a beautifully, beautifully constructed shot. Yeah, and we'll see. Very it. hard to do, and we'll see it numerous times throughout yeah. the film, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and we hear that he, the next thing he's going to do is to go to the Thatcher Library, mm-hmm. and then he's going to see Mr. Bernstein. So we kind of know where he's going. Ask the waiter about Rosebud. As a matter of fact, uh, just the other day when the papers were full of it. I asked her. She never heard of Rosebud. So we're not solving the mystery here. Right. Let's go to the Thatcher Library. Okay. (laughs) What a monument this guy has built to himself. To himself. Uh, And we start with this very dramatic, huge statue of uh, of Thatcher. Looking down on you. Looking down on you. From a position of, come from a chair, a position of comfort. It is a dominance. Yeah. This statue is about four or five inches tall. It's made of paper mache. Is it really? Yeah. (laughs) Because this is another special effects shot. We're going to pan down from that. It's a composite shot to to the real space. And and here's, again, Wells' genius for set design is this space with the wide angle lens looks like this huge marble mausoleum and it really is not much of a set at all it's like a door and a wall Mm -hmm. and part of what makes it seem like a set is the sound design yeah is that wells uh put all of this sound into an echo chamber uh and this is how you used to do it was they literally you would record the sound and it would all sound good and then you would 
you had a you would play the sound through a speaker into a room that had all these surfaces mm -hmm. that created echoes and re-recorded in there, and that's how you get this sound. Oh, wow. You would send it out to a chamber or a metal plate or something like that to get all the echoes, and then you would bring that back in. Right. Um, and so that's how he makes part of what makes this space feel so big and stone mm -hmm. is just the sound. Yeah. Um, and we go in to read Thatcher's diary. But this entire uh sequence and then also obviously in the um after the newsreel footage his use of light him and tolan and the use of light absolutely is just incredible what they highlight very brightly in light what they silhouette whatever what they use throughout the film especially and then the scene with susan alexander as well like that waiter is in darkness the island is in darkness she's in light there's just all kinds of things the way they play with shadows and light throughout the whole movie is really incredible and this scene is the same thing right. it's massively large but the light makes it look even larger right. right it makes it look even more distant and cold and when he goes to sit down the book is in bright light as if right. it's as if it's like a bible like you know like it's a blessed thing to be able to read this diary yeah, of know? this of this great man yeah this great man exactly yeah it's one of the interesting things that I, this movie makes me think about a lot of us confusing wealth with greatness. Yes. You know? Yeah. A lot of why this guy is remembered is this guy was rich. Right. You know? Well, Bernstein says that later. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. That is, that is, that is a really good point. And we're listening to the, this heavy Bernard Herman score. Mm -hmm. And we look down at the diary and we start to read about the first time that Thatcher met Kane in 18. Seven, I forget what year it is now. Yeah. Um, and the music starts to change mm -hmm. and becomes joyful. Yeah. And there is little Charles Foster Kane, probably nine years old or so, mm -hmm. and he throws a snowball at the Kane boarding house. What a great way to show where you're at and you're set, right? Right off the bat, we see him as a child because the way the camera moves, it moves across the words. Mm -hmm. Like we're going off into an adventure, right? We're going to the right, moving left to right. We're going into an adventure. We see him playing with the snow. The music is great. And then it's and then we don't know where he's at. Then he throws a snowball, says Kane's boarding house. Oh, okay, we get it. This is Charles Foster Kane as a child. This is the boarding house. And the music stops. Yep. The joyful music stops yep. with the sound of that snowball hitting the wood. Well, because this is you know, in many ways, the last moment of pure joy yeah. for this human's life. Exactly. This is, this is it, mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to go in and we're going to meet his parents, Agnes Moorhead playing his mother mm -hmm. in just a stunning and unknowable and mysterious and strange and powerful and profound performance. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, the more I think about this scene, mm -hmm. the more I go, this is the movie. This Ooh. is the most important scene in the film. Okay. I, and I keep and, and my perception of what I thought this scene was about 20 years ago is really different from how I feel about it now. Okay. It is just, I've watched it and watched it and watched it and trying to figure out, this is the movie to me. Yeah. You know, like this is exact, this is what, and it is clearly what Kane, Charles Foster Kane is obsessed about is this moment in time. Yeah. This thing that is about to happen, which is we come inside and again, we're in this unbelievable deep focus shot. And as we talked about before, that means you need to have a lot of light so you can stop your, your aperture way down and you need to have a very wide lens. Mm -hmm. And you can create this you know, focus where Kane, the little kid, way in the background through the window is still in clear, crystal clear focus. Yeah. And he's very small. And Agnes Moorhead in the foreground, her head is huge. And we have mid-ground characters with the father and with Thatcher. And so first of all, technically the shot is remarkable. Yeah. But what's happening is that she is signing a contract to send her child to be raised by a banker. 
I'll sign those papers now, Mr. Thatcher. You people seem to forget that I'm the boy's father. It's going to be done exactly the way I've told Mr. Thatcher. There ain't nothing wrong with Colorado. I don't see why we can't raise our own son just because we come into some money. And I, I know we we talked about this on the commentary. Yeah. I I I think she's doing the right thing in her, and I and I see her I reasons. Think she thinks she's doing the right thing. Right, because she's not going to be a, like they have all this money now, and she's not going to be able to raise him in the way that she she's she it's it at least the vibe i get is these are poor people these yeah. are uneducated people they want what's best for their child and at that time it was not unheard of to hand your child off to or send them off to be raised by other people of higher quality or higher caliber if you could afford it right uh, and so this is something that was necessarily we would almost never see it nowadays but back then it was certainly possible because education was harder to come by the ability to come into wealth was harder to come by and so this this wanting what's best for your child though is very universal and so for her in her mind i think she's doing what she needs to do so her child will have a better life than she has with this drunk abusive husband of hers well there's no question in my mind that she thinks she's doing what's best for her child. right that i'm not saying it's not motivatable but it is clearly not what's best for her child that's your opinion this is a miserable deeply unhappy person who spends his entire life wishing he had the love of his mother yes but i mean that Yes, but he could have also been raised by them and been a deeply unhappily miserable person. Going, if it hadn't, if you, you guys were too stupid to raise me, you pissed. I pissed all this money away because you didn't educate me. You guys weren't smart enough to educate me. Blah blah blah. There were other choices that could have been. These were not the only two choices. Well, I'm just well, and this is the thing options. too. This is. I mean, it's like she could have gone with him. She she shows so much strength in this yeah, scene. She probably could have gone with him. She shows so much strength, and she yeah. clearly is not taking anything from that husband. No. She has got all the power in the scene, and yet her choice is to send him away to be raised by strangers. Mm-hmm. And we get the sense that they didn't see each other very much after this. No, you know, at like, all. Like like this is like I mean, literally, she's trying to do something that is loving, but she is. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about the scene is that. It does seem that the implication is dad is a drunk. Mm-hmm. And it does seem that the implication is, is maybe he's hit the kid and stuff like that. Yeah, he swings but, twice. But but the kid's behavior towards his father, mm-hmm. and the dad actually seems to like him, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants to give him a kid. Like, yeah. like, well, that, that's a big thing. There are people in this film that call him Charlie. Mm-hmm. And there are people that call him Charles. Mm-hmm. And the people that really love him are the ones that call him Charlie. Yes. Leland, Susan... And his dad. Yeah, good point. And he runs to his dad to give a hug. I think he has fun with his dad. I think his dad is also drunk. Uh, he comes from the east. Wow. Hello, Charlie. Charles? Yes, mommy? This is a great point, Steve, because his mom calls him Charles. She calls him Charles. When he goes to run to his dad, she goes, Charles! But she does him. not let him be affectionate with his father. Right. You know? Now, and I'm not saying that he, that dad is a good. I mean, I think he. I think he is a drunk who hits yeah, his kid. Yeah. But I also think that mom's her behavior is cold, and removed and formal, and maybe she's doing all of that because she's trying to protect him. That's what I think. I think. I, I think that is why she's doing it. I think she's not allow herself to be emotional. She's one of these women who are just very steel. Some women are just steel, man. Well, and I think this is why she is, and she is haunting in this scene. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got his bag packed for a week now. Yeah, I've got his trunk all packed. I've had it packed for a week now. 
It is like she is almost removed from this plane of existence. I think she's doing what she has to do for herself to make this decision. And that's yeah. the thing. Because she, she lo- I think she loves it, Charles. I think she loves him very much. I think it's it just she's just stealing herself emotionally for this decision because she thinks it's the right decision. I think that is exactly what's happening. Right or wrong, it's the right decision in her mind. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's. I think it's a great... We could debate it for an hour, this idea well, of Well, it's unknowable. That's right. why I say... That's, that's why I thing. keep going back to that's the scene. That's what's great about the film. Is that we don't get enough information. But I think you're right. This is the scene that colors everything else that comes afterwards. Because this is the moment mm-hmm. that his mom sent him away. Yep. And I mean, I, I think in a, a child's life, how can you ever yeah. learn to reckon with that? Yeah. You know, and he is literally raised without love, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is what ruins him, you know? And I, it's just such a painful, and it's funny too, like dad has this moment of this is wrong, the idea that a bank would be, yeah. you know, and he wants to stand up. And the moment that Thatcher says, you're going to get 50000 a year. And he goes, well, I guess if it's for the best. <laughs> yeah, right. Because Which... one of the things I think about dad is he is weak. Yes. He's a weak man. Absolutely he is. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think she's doing what she's doing. She wants him to be raised in a better environment. Now, she doesn't know that it's going to turn him into this or that. What does she know about the rich other than they seem to live better and happier than they do on the poor side of town. Now, she's getting the money from all the calls, so she's going to be rich too. Right. So's him. So there's an argument to be made here. Did they just want to get rid of Charles so they could just go enjoy their money? Or did she not did she not want him to like did she know she couldn't educate him the way she wanted him to be educated with this idiot drunk of a husband? Like maybe. That's the thing. Well, so I think she's she's on some level a broken person. Mm-hmm. You know, that she and, and she I don't think she from her perspective can see a way mm-hmm. that the only thing she can see is what you say. He must be raised by the people that can do a better job than we can do. Right. Um, and this is this this thing of, you know, humans need love way more than they need money. Yeah. You know, yeah, that, that and and he, she removes him from love. Yeah. It, it's a it's a brutal brutal scene and there's the you know and so so you know she, we go out to meet the kid and uh and you see thatcher again great performance from george Kaluris, yeah. where it's an interesting thing that actors have to do sometime which is this is an actor playing a part of a guy acting like he's going to be fun with this kid mm-hmm. when he's not mm-hmm. you're going to see chicago and new york and washington maybe ain't he mr thatcher he certainly is i wish i were a little boy going on a trip like that for the first time and you can see the character of Thatcher do a pretty good job of trying to be nice to this kid yeah. because he's essentially getting paid a lot of money right. to be a babysitter. And but but failing and Kane seeing right through it, mm-hmm. you know, and pushing him over, which is obviously not a nice thing for a little kid to do. This is the kind of uh, uh, guardian he's going to be. Yep. Very clumsy and stupid and unable to connect to the child. You get that already right. in a microcosm. But and, and the shock, I mean, this is it's what's interesting too about the way mom is doing this is this happens really fast. Yeah. Like he, one minute he's playing in the snow throwing snowballs, and the next minute you're gonna go live in New York with this guy mm-hmm. and you're leaving in a train that's coming right now. Yeah. I mean, that is brutal. Yeah, but three three things happen here, right? Uh, him pushing over Thatcher causes the father to want to hit Charles. Yep. Then she brings him over. Yes. And the dad apologizes to Thatcher and says what he needs is a good spanking or a good right. whipping. And the mother says... That's what you think, is it, Jim? Yes. That's why he's going to be brought up where you can't get at him. And I think that's why she's doing what she's doing. It's To me, no it's question. the end of the debate, in my mind, she's doing what she thinks is best for the child, 
in that line, right? Whether it was the best, of course, very debatable. But I think she's doing what she thinks because she knows he's he, that guy is a terrible father. No, we're going to ruin him. We agree that that I, I totally agree. Yeah. That's why she's doing what she's doing. Yeah. And this is the only close up, by the way. Yes. That moment of that cut into her face. And again, she's got that weird yeah. kind of determined, distant, disconnected. That's why you're I'm going to send him where you can't hurt him. Yeah. And the camera pans down to Charles's face. Mm -hmm. And it is not coincidental. I think that this kid seems to be about nine years old. Mm -hmm. And that's the age Wells was when his mother died. Yep. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that the parallel, you know, you say, is this movie about William Randolph Hearst? In a lot of ways. Is this movie about Orson Welles? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wells is a guy who was definitely affected by the death of his mother when he was nine, the death of his father when he was 15 from mm -hmm. alcoholism. Um, and this is one of the big differences with Hearst because Hearst was a mama's boy. Mm -hmm. Hearst was, both his parents lived quite a long time. His mom lived till 1919. They traveled throughout Europe uh, and his mom encouraged him yeah. to be wealthy and buy things and have, be, be ambitious. And she was his biggest fan yeah. in a lot of ways. Whereas Wells, you know, was raised by the Todd school mm -hmm. and, you know, raised by, he had mentors, but not parents. Right. And mentors but not parents is a very, very different thing. Absolutely. And uh, what I think of the film, what you say, Steve, is correct. It is, yes, it's about Hearst, but it's also about Kane. And I've said this before, it's a very prophetic film about what's going to happen to Orson sure Welles. Sure is. Rather, in the rest of his life. But I think what's important is, is in some strange way, because of this film and because of how Wells ends up in his actual life, uh, Hearst almost got the last laugh. And Marion Davies almost got the last mm. laugh. And I wonder if, in some karmic way, him using that rosebud, this is the penance. This is, this the, is the punishment. Yeah. yeah. And so it's interesting. Well, you know, I mean, he is he is a classic uh, Greek tragedy. Yes. You know, it's hubris. On so many levels. You know, and, and he is Icarus, and he flies too close to the sun. Mm -hmm. And we're left on a shot of the sled as snow slowly piles up on it, and we hear the sound of the train in the distance. It's a sad, it's a sad shot, mm -hmm. you know, and we cut to a sled and Christmas. Yeah. And Charles opening up a very, very different sled. And the costume that he's in is formal yeah. and fancy and uncomfortable looking. This is like a little Lord Fauntleroy. Totally does. And then you see the the flaming fire next to it. It's, yep. it's not a warm no. house, even though it probably is technically a warm house, you know, with the amount of but fire. It's extremely it's formal. Yeah. And we look up at Thatcher towering, yeah. towering over Kane, saying, Well, Charles... Merry Christmas. No, not even an effect, like lean down, a hug, no. anything. It is very much from a place of uh, remove. What a weird gig Thatcher's got. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what he's getting paid, but he's getting paid to professionally raise this kid. Right. Like, the kid's living in his house, clearly. Right. Like, how... How weird is that? He was hired to educate the child and to raise the child. Yeah. He was not hired to love the child. No. And we see these no. servants that yeah, are there. Yeah, they're all standing there. And, and so in this yeah. one one moment of Merry Christmas, yeah. we get a total sense of what this kid's childhood is like. <laughs> and he has this angry Merry Christmas back. Merry Christmas. 
and immediately we cut to and a happy new year (laughs) it's 20 years later and thatcher (laughs) is dictating a letter to kane yes what an amazing time transition it's fantastic they're incredible time jumps throughout this whole movie yeah are so effective i mean this is again this is a guy who's never made a movie before right they just he understands this thing about filmmaking that's so important which is things can carry you across a cut um, and the audience will not question it at all yeah. if it's done technically correct. And Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year is a perfect example of we totally understand what's happened and how much time has passed, mm-hmm. and we don't blink at it at all. Yeah. And I will say, I think the newsreel prepares us for this. I think the newsreel laying yeah. the groundwork of jumping time, seeing the different ages, moving around his life, prepares that this this movie is going to be this. So, uh, So Thatcher is dictating this letter. And talking about he's the sixth largest private fortune and it's time for him to, you know, make some choices in his life. Um, And then he gets this note back from Wells. And I love even the handwriting on the note is a great choice, is that it's kind of big. It's not beautifully written. And he says, I don't care about any of these investments and stuff like this. There is one thing that I saw on the list of stuff that we own, and that's this newspaper, The Inquirer. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. (sighs) I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. (sighs) And then we go right into this montage about the Traction Trust. Traction Trust exposed. Traction Trust, please, by Traction Trust, smash by Inquirer. Yes. Um, and it is a perfectly, perfectly constructed montage. Yes. You... And the music oh, it's great. is the first time, was the second time we hear joyful music. Yep. Right? And it's because this is Kane kind of feeling himself and happy again doing something. And it is thumbing his nose at this establishment that we will find out just from that sequence where he said, Merry Christmas right. to Thatcher. This is going to be his attitude towards the establishment right. of the entire movie, which also mirrors Wells's attitude to the establishment through his entire life. So there's all here. So this hill exposing the traction, copper barons, all that stuff. Great, great montage. But he's so ex- it's the music is so exciting. Well, and it's funny. I hadn't thought about it until you just said that. But uh we don't like Thatcher. No. And from the very beginning, when we see the statue shot and yeah. the heavy, heavy music and his ridiculous memorial to him and the ridiculous, we want to take Thatcher down. Yeah. And so we, when he says, Merry Christmas, and then we go into, I want to run this newspaper and the Traction Trust, we're like, yeah, mm. go Kane. Yeah. We're having a ball. Yep. And it's fine. There's a thing uh, I've heard uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the unbelievably brilliant composer of Hamilton interviewed and I've heard him tell this story a couple of times now which is that Stephen Sondheim was a mentor to him oh, wow. and uh and lo- saw uh listened to many of the Hamilton songs as he was working on him and gave him advice and one of the pieces of advice he gave Lin-Manuel Miranda was basically that's a great rhythm or moment or or style to that song you must vary it because even if it's good if people just start bobbing their head to the same thing uh, and it doesn't change, they will cease to be consciously involved. And that you have to vary what you're doing all the time mm-hmm. in order to keep them interested. Mm-hmm. K- Citizen Kane is one of the great versions of that mm-hmm. because we have gone stylistically through so many different versions and it keeps changing. And it doesn't stay heavy and somber that it gets really fun and yeah. bright, which it is in this moment as we go through this montage that climaxes with galleons of Spain off the Jersey coast. <laughs> <laughs> A ridiculous headline. And that propels us into meeting for the first time, mm-hmm. the young 
Orson Welles. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. Can you prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just borrow How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. And he, he is turning in his chair to face you. Yep. Right? In a position of power and comfort and, and I don't know, cockiness, swagger. Swagger. that chair. Yeah. yeah. He, he definitely got the swagger. Yeah. And what's funny is this was a famous voice from the radio. Yeah. And unless you were on Broadway, you, you hadn't, even the cover of Time Magazine that Orson Welles was on was him in makeup. Yeah. Like you really hadn't seen this guy. Mm-hmm. And we've been building, you know, 20 minutes into the movie to finally revealing what this young Orson Welles is going to look like. And when he was younger, he had the beard or he attempted to use, yeah. have the beard. So this is like really a, just a very yeah. fresh-faced young guy. Yeah. Um, and immediately we hear, and as, as we're talking about these galleons of Spain off the Jersey Shore, he gets a telegram from someone. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. Which is a direct reference to William Randolph Hearst, who received a telegram that said, I can give you great photos of Cuba, but there is no war in Cuba. And he said, you provide the photos, I'll provide the war. And Hearst really did, is one of the key reasons we had the Spanish-American War. Mm -hmm. Hearst did a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. like he um, in, in setting up for the Spanish-American War, the, there's this whole story he was running about this poor, poor woman who was imprisoned in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And it was com- really constructed and manufactured. He even like hired people to break her out of jail and yeah. put her back in jail. Like, I mean, he just faked all this stuff. There's all sorts of things uh, uh, that Hearst did when he took over the examiner in San Francisco. He had a guy ride on the ferry and jump off of the ferry, one of his reporters, to, to, to expose how their rescue system worked. He had people doing all sorts of ridiculous things. Like he is the father of yellow journalism and, yeah. and, and used his power for some things maybe that were good and a lot of things that weren't. Like one of the one of the conspiracy theories about Hearst is he's one of the reasons marijuana was made illegal in the United States. Oh. Because the, he owned the largest paper mill in the country, which used wood pulp to make paper. Their biggest competitor used hemp from uh, cannabis plants. And so he started the big sort of reefer anti-marijuana campaign. Wow. And very shortly after in the early 19, you know, hundreds, that's when the first laws against smoking weed happened huh. in the United States was because of Hearst. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. He's a powerful, powerful guy. Yeah. Uh, and, but here we have Kane and he's arguing with, not only is he arguing about the war in Cuba, but they're also arguing about the traction trust. Yeah. And there is this moment where he says, do you, you know, Thatcher reminds him, you know that you're one of the biggest single shareholders. And then we get this speech and the intensity of Cain, as he says. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And you 
love this guy. Yeah, you do. You are a hundred percent sold. You this get sucked up because you get sucked up into believing he is this defender of the good causes and the way he's been presented and he's been, you know, handed a bad hand in life from the beginning because of how he was raised right. and sent off. So we, we, we have a lot of things to sympathize with this character and the way he's presented and the way he's going at Thatcher and all of that is just inherently almost subconscious in the way that we immediately gravitate to him because we want our heroes to be these dashing, good looking people right. who fight for the common cause and the good of the, the underprivileged and all those kinds of things. And we see that with him, but his, we see the sample of, his anger at that yeah. establishment when he juts his head almost like a snake shoots his head out and says you know this you know it's a secret it's also my privilege yeah. there is this when he stands up yeah. I and mean, it is really an intense conversation mm -hmm. and it's funny because i mean in a weird way like it's kind of like he's batman you know it's like he's the rich mm. wealthy guy who's gonna fight for the good yeah. you know or he's robin hood or he's you know and there's a huge tradition voice the shadow yeah he's yeah, that yeah. and you go and and you could almost imagine this movie in which that's actually who this guy is. Yeah. You know, you could totally have a wealthy guy who becomes the, the campaigning newspaper man who's fighting for the great causes. Yeah. But the fact that we have him creating a war in Cuba in the very same scene. Right. Is sort of are already undermining mm -hmm. that maybe he's not the hero that we want him to be. Right. You know, I'm fascinated by what Thatcher really thinks of Kane. Mm -hmm. Does he care for him? I don't think he cares for him. I don't think he likes him, but I think he cares. Oh, maybe that's fair. I mean, because that even you know, Kane makes this speech where he's really confrontational, yeah. and the next thing he says is, "You know, my boy, you're losing a million dollars a year on yeah, the paper." Yeah, that's a good point. You know? Yeah. And 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 then of course Kane's response is, "You're right, Mister Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year." You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Which again goes to like, you know, when you got the most money in the world, yeah. you can do a lot of stuff. Sure. You don't have to face consequences. And yet, we're going to cut forward mm -hmm. to 929, a huge leap forward. Yeah. And here's a much older Charles Foster Kane facing the consequences. Yep. Much older Thatcher and a much older Bernstein. Yep. It's basically him uh, having to sign over a majority because of the Depression. And the, we see Wells now in the older makeup, the physicality of a larger, right. older man, the the uh, uh, slow movement of him. The change in his voice. Yeah, everything. And and where he's in case now, he, is, he has now become that which he was fighting against the establishment right and it is and by framing him with the columns like that right it's a subconscious thing for the viewer that you get the sense he is like one of those buildings that he is looking at he's been he's that kind of uh he is now that kind of uh, uh part of the scenery right and that is so great of a juxt of a juxtaposition to change from this young vibrant crusader for rights to this old broken down man who's just like he's he's become what he was fighting against when all that passion and all that stuff yeah. like it's gone it's gone the I anger's mean, still there oh at sure Thatcher especially oh but, sure but the uh, yeah all the um, passion's gone if we only had wells's performance mm -hmm. like if we didn't have greg toland if we didn't have the the complicated structure we would still have to honor this movie as one of the most uh, incredible performances of any actor in the history of film agreed and, and you see it in these two scenes juxtaposed. Mm -hmm. The young, passionate, vibrant person, and now that same guy, that same 24-year-old guy is playing this stiff, sad, 
powerful person in this scene. Yeah. Um, but of course, we don't just have his performance. We also, here we are in another unbelievable deep focus shot with Bernstein framed in the front right of the frame mm-hmm. with a paper. When he drops down the paper, we reveal Thatcher in the in the mid-ground looking smaller. And then Wells walks in to the center of the frame, walks back to these windows, which as he walks back to them, you see just how high those windows are, that they're over six feet off the ground. Right. I mean, that's that's what this wide angle lens is doing to our sense of space. And he's very, very small in the background. So so in terms of the structure, the filming of this scene is amazing. Yep. And the writing of this scene is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Which means we're bust. All right. Well, out of cash. All right, Mr. Bernstein. I've read it, Mr. Thatcher. Let me sign it and I'll go home. Too old to call me Mr. Thatcher, Charles. You're too old to be called anything else. You were always too old. And and again, this is why I, I think Thatcher does care about him on some level. Yeah, and in this scene, right. in this scene, he shows some caring. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's not he's like you know. There's always a chance you're going to die a richer man than I will. Yeah. Um, and, and he goes, well, I'll certainly die richer than I was born. And then we get to this moment. You know, Mr. Bernstein, if I hadn't been very rich. I might have been a really great man. And he, and it's important that he does, says this to Bernstein. He doesn't say this to Thatcher. Mm-hmm. He's always playing to an audience. Yeah, of course. And Thatcher's not his audience. Mm-hmm. And and Thatcher is the one who says, don't you think you are? Again, I think that shows caring. Yep. And, and his response is, I think I did pretty well under the circumstances. And Thatcher asks, what would you like to have been? Everything you hate. That is such mean harsh line sure sure i mean i don't like thatcher by the way yeah, yeah, yeah. i have no problem i mean i don't think he's a, a nice person i think you can make a case though steve that he is who he is and therefore can you judge him on a normal spectrum he is who he is thatcher like yeah. he is not intentionally evil to wells i mean to kane He's trying. He raises he Kane the, best he, the best he could. Yeah. Uh, and yes, he shows his care for Kane by constantly monitoring his money, making sure he's doing the right things, investing correctly. Well, he's a very good banker. Yeah, he, he is. A- but he wouldn't have to go that extra mile if he didn't care. So there's a great point you make. But Kane needs an establishment figure to fight against. He needs it to identify himself. Yeah. And so by s- smashing at. Thatcher, who he, who he sees as part of the establishment still, even though he himself is now part of the establishment, new money versus old money, he, he can't resist it. He can't resist one last dig at his expense. And the uh, spite in Wells's face when he says that to him is uh, profound. Well, and the other thing about it is that it's also a line of tremendous failure. Yes. Because sure. he isn't everything that Thatcher hates. Nope. He wasn't able to be that person he was trying to be when he's 25. Right. He actually, as you say, he is much closer to Thatcher than he is to the crusading newspaper man. Mm-hmm. You know, he is yeah. the establishment. He, is he failed to be everything that Thatcher hates. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this is the end of our Thatcher sequence. <laughs> we come out of reading the diary. He closes the book with a bang. He didn't find anything that he was looking for. In rushes this woman who, and it's fascinating to me that she's wearing a suit and tie. She has a very deep voice. Mm-hmm. You know, just these little details. Mm-hmm. And he kind of walks out with a joke. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for the use of the hall. And we have a little musical womp, womp, womp. Yeah. From well, the guard's Bernard an idiot. Herman. Yeah, the guard is the, the male guard is an idiot, and the, the 
female lady in charge of things is very, you can tell is very prim and proper, like Thatcher would be. And right. Thatcher would select this woman to be, and she probably was his right. assistant for 30 Forever. years. Yeah, yeah for yeah. 30 years or whatever. So, yeah. And so she revered him in that way. I would not want to hang out with Thatcher. Yeah. You know, of the people, like I'd hang out with Jed Leland. He seems like a hoot. <laughs> sure. But, but I'll tell you, my, my secret is about this film is, of course, I love Wells and Kane. But my two favorite people to watch are Thatcher and uh, Bernstein. I absolutely love both sure. of them in the film. And they're very similar in appearance. Mm. But for whatever reason, they just interest me the most throughout the movie because they are constant in their, who, in who they are yeah. through the whole movie. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of consistency. <laughs> that is a very interesting way to look at it. <laughs> I really What's am. interesting, too, is you take sort of the nicest person, which is Bernstein yeah. in the film, mm -hmm. and the least sort of emotionally available person, which is Thatcher. Sure. You know, they're mm -hmm. kind of opposites in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's a study of human psychology for me to watch those guys. It's fascinating to see what turns one into one yeah. and what turns one into the other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and speaking of Bernstein, that's where we're going to go because oh. he's our next our next interview. And we come in and, you know, you know, who's a busy man? Me, I'm chairman of the board. I got nothing but time. Nothing but time. And it's interesting, too, before we had Thatcher, both his statue and his mm -hmm. portrait, hanging over us. Yeah. And now what's hanging over Bernstein in his office? Kane. Kane and an old uh, portrait yeah. of Kane, right? Near the end. Yeah. It, it, it's, and, and then it, it's funny. We talk about this idea of memory and Rosebud. And you'd be surprised at what you remember. And this story of Bernstein's, it's one of my favorite moments of the movie. It's my favorite moments in film, period. Yeah. Well, Mr. Bernstein, we thought maybe... If we could find out what he meant by his last words as he was dying. That rosebud, huh? Maybe some girl. There were a lot of them back in the early days. It's hardly likely, Mr. Bernstein, that Mr. Kane could have met some girl casually and then 50 years later on his deathbed. Well, you're pretty young, Mr. Mr. Thompson. A fellow remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. It is so love. And what's interesting about it yeah, you could cut that out of a movie and no one would know. Sure, it doesn't advance the story at all, and yet it is. There's something, and it's Everett Sloan's performance, and it's the writing, and it's so simple. Mm -hmm. And he just tells this thing, and you go, and there's some fundamental truth in it, I think, mm -hmm. and something lovely and sweet and delicate in that story. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it, what it does is it furthers his character. It makes us love him even more, you know, because we we love Bernstein from beginning to end. Because of his love for Wells, but also because we sense inherently he's a good person. And yeah, one of absolutely. The, one of the few people in this whole film who's inherently good. And he doesn't feel like old money. He feels like Wells is a guy who is... He came up. Yeah. yeah, he came up in the war. Yeah. He has scratched for everything he got. He fought for everything he got. And he, you know, he's loyal. And that's that, that's a rare quality. These are rare qualities. Well, and I think without Bernstein, there is no Kane uh, papers. Oh, absolutely. He is actually the guy who's making all of this work. Mm -hmm. You know, because Kane's doing his crazy ideas, and right. Leland's a, a irresponsible guy. Right. And but Bernstein is making all this happen. Bernstein is the Greg Toland of the situation. Totally. He is walking behind Kane, making everything happen. Kane yep. has all these incredible ideas. Bernstein makes them happen practically. He tells him that he went to see Susan Alexander. Mm. So um, and he says, Susan, and by the <laughs> I way, love that. I also think, so we've talked about Charlie and mm -hmm. Charles. 
the two people that like her called her Susie. Right. Leland yes. and Bernstein call yes. her Susie. Charles calls her Susan. Yeah. Because he cares about what he wants to turn her into. Right. What she represents to him. Not what she actually is. Right. Um, but, we'll, but we're a little ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that Bernstein says is that Thatcher was the biggest fool he'd ever met or something like that. Right. And the reporter's like, well, he made a lot of money. Yeah. It's no secret to make a lot of money if all you want to do is to make a lot of money. That is a profound line. It has stuck with me ever since I saw the movie when I was 17, yeah. 16 years old. Now, I actually think making a lot of money isn't actually the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> right. If it were really easy, a lot of people would just be doing it. Right. But if all you want is to make a lot of money, that is a that is an important line. Mm-hmm. And that Kane was after something else. Yes. Money was not what he was interested because in. Because he had it. Yeah. Right. Well, Thatcher has a lot of money. Sure. Um, but he money was what he was interested in. Right. I mean, there there are a lot of people who have a lot of money and are only interested in making more money. Yes. Yeah. Which is also very sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I love his line too. By the way, that he was with Kane from before the beginning, but and now it's after. The and now it's after the end. <laughs> well, so what does that mean from before the beginning? Was he a clerk that Kane met at uh, at at uh, Thatcher's office or business? Was he there? Because they're very similar in age. So were they? Like, did they meet somewhere in Thatcher's uh, employ? I have no idea, but I don't think he came from Thatcher. Okay. I mean, obviously, I, we have he no... He doesn't exude to you as a banker? No. Okay. No, I think he was uh, I think he was someone that Kane met when he... Like, he, he was some... Like, Kane's traveling from this place to other, mm-hmm. coming off a boat somewhere, and he meets this kid who helps him do a thing, and that kid just stays with him. Okay. I that For me. Okay. Because he doesn't seem polished or... I mean, Thatcher wouldn't hire a guy like Bernstein. No, but that's what I mean. I think Bernstein could have been an intern or a page or someone a small lower rung in that situation who wanted to work himself up into a banker. Yeah, maybe. And then Kane friend befriended him and blah blah. Because with Lily, we know I don't they think were Thatcher, school buddies. I don't think Thatcher has Jews working for him. <laughs> well, that's a strong statement. No, I, I mean this is a. I thought Thatcher was a. Jew. You don't think Thatcher's Jewish? Oh God, no. Really? No, he's an East Coast wasp. Uh, Fascinating. Abs- absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah, they, they, this is in the ni- early 1900s. They didn't Jews weren't living like that. Fair enough. I don't. Yeah. I don't know yeah. that in the way that you would culturally. So I, I, I don't know it historically for myself. So, um, okay. Yeah, I mean th- that is the Thatcher's behavior is very much wow. white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know, to me, fair. But we don't know. You I mean, would know, not me. Well, I mean, well, the thing I'm is, you I mean, know better than me. <laughs> I mean, but but what's funny is, is we don't know where Bernstein came from. And it's a really interesting point. Somewhere Kane found Bernstein. Yeah. And because to me, it's just this became his follower. Yeah. And and listen, in life, if you can find a Bernstein, you know, you gotta keep him. It's really yeah. tough to find a Bernstein. Yeah. <laughs> we all could use one. <laughs> you know, it's like someone who 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 makes this stuff happen. Yeah. And you could depend upon, which we can depend upon Bernstein. Man, he's the best. Right. Um, and of course, we, you know, Bernstein was there the first day they took over the Inquirer. And then we get that great music again. Yep. And this is the most joyful the movie's going to be. Yes. He was with Mr. Kane and me the first day Mr. Kane took over the Inquirer. <laughs> gonna look a lot different one of these days come on this is this is the the peak mm-hmm. and and i i find the second half of kane hard which is why i don't watch it as much probably as you do 
Really? I find, it's really painful. I How find this to be a painful movie. Um, but the first half here, I could watch this all the time. Well, I have this the same way. I have the same approach to Goodfellas. Right. I love Goodfellas up until they hit the seventies. Then I really hate the fucking movie all the way to the end. But like everything up to the seventies is great because I don't want to know that they ended up like this. I don't want to know they broke up. They turned on each other, and the fucking uh, Jimmy was killed. Like I didn't or not, uh, whatever his name, Tommy was killed. I didn't want to know all this stuff. Yeah. And then it happens. And you're just like, ah, oh, it's terrible. But that's the truth of the gangster life. Right. And this is the truth of Kane's life. Yeah. And, and I actually love the second half of the movie a lot. I I think but it's I get great. What, I, I get, love it. I get what you're I saying. I just don't. It's it's just hard. It I hurts. Get it. You know. I get Whereas it. this is fun. Yes. We come in, you know, we come into the newspaper and we have the very stuffy Erskine Sanford in the old school turn of the century newspaper with his very formal yeah. old reporters welcoming Kane <laughs> and the great confusion about which one is Leland and which one is Kane and, right. and their play. I mean, this is really, you see some comedy chops mm-hmm. in this scene. It's a very, very funny scene. Including from Sanford. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he is he is great. Yeah. We have the reveal the, as the bed is coming in that he's going to live there mm. um, and he's just going to move in and they're going to remake the paper, which we see later that night. It's the middle of the night. And we are still, uh, you know, one of my moments that I don't love okay. is, is I'm not a cartoonist <laughs> and he's coming in with this drawing. And I think they just wanted oh, Leland. A, Leland. Yeah, that yeah, moment yeah. is like, why? I think they wanted a button to open the scene with. Yeah, I think they, they wanted, wanted a little, funny. a little thing. But that's the thing between friends too. Sure. Because also Kane is trying to figure out where to put Leland. Um, but I do love, are you still eating? I'm still hungry. <laughs> and we again, we see this charming, funny, young, because this, mm-hmm. this cane is actually younger yes. than the one we saw before, because that's where the paper was a little more established. Right. This is the first day on the paper. Yep. We hear what kind of paper it's going to be. Now look, Mr. Carter, here's a front page story in the Chronicle about a Mrs. Harry Silverstone in Brooklyn who's missing. Now, she's probably murdered. And here's a picture of her in the Chronicle. Why isn't there something about it in the Inquirer? Because we're running a newspaper. Joseph, I'm absolutely starving to this breakfast later and get that. No, I'm very hungry. Look, Mr. Carter, here is a three-column headline in the Chronicle. Why hasn't the Inquirer a three-column headline? News wasn't big enough. Mm -hmm. Mr. Carter... If the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough. <laughs> and this is this weird juxtaposition between the scandal sheet element mm-hmm. of if you have a bigger headline, it makes the news bigger, right? which is certainly something we see today in the world, yep. with this other thing he does in the scene, which is the Declaration of Principles. Yeah. We'll be on the street soon, Charlie. Another 10 minutes. Three hours and 50 minutes late, but we did it. Tired? Tough day. A wasted day. Wasted? Mm-hmm. You only made the paper over four times tonight, that's all. I've changed the front page a little, Mr. Bernstein. That's not enough. No, there's something I've got to get into this paper besides pictures and print. I've got to make the New York Inquirer as important to New York as the gas in that light. What are you going to do, Charlie? Declaration of Principles. And what's funny is, I think we notice, we're focused on the Declaration of Principles and not noticing the other things that are undercutting that declaration, even within this scene. I think that's what makes him a fascinating character, Steve. Is And I think that's why people love the movie and they love Kane and people love Kane in the movie because for all his uh, inclinations to do the mean thing or the evil thing or the wrong thing or the immoral thing or unscrupulous thing, there is a good heart underneath it. And so you can't resist him because he does have this idealism to him. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, he just doesn't have that second piece to the idealism that would push it, that would be aware of this, uh, his narcissism or his, his sociopathic behavior, which, of course, 
very true of 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 Orson Welles as well. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's such a hard thing because you know there's a certain point. You know, we can have long conversations about the means justifying mm. the ends, and I think those, those those are fluid situations. Yep. There are means that sometimes justify ends, mm-hmm. and there. But but I think in general in life there are only means. There are no ends. We never get to the end. Mm. You know and. And the fact that we have this scene in which he's saying... Now, the murder of this Mrs. Harry Silverstone... There's no proof that that woman was murdered, no proof, or even that she's dead. she's missing, and the neighbors are getting suspicious. It's not our function to report the gossip of housewives. If we were interested in that kind of thing, Mr. Kane, we could fill the paper twice over daily. Mr. Carter, that's the kind of thing we are going to be interested in from now on. Mm-hmm. Send this guy, have him claim to be a detective from the central office, and say, you know, and pressure this guy, and it's like... And it's fun to listen to the plan. Yeah. And and maybe the guy did kill his wife, and maybe they're going to find him out with this. Right. But these are nasty, nasty tactics yeah. that he's using, which are very much like the Hearst tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much like Wells' tactics, if you see the documentary about this yep. film, where he used an ambulance to go to voiceover job, to voiceover job, to yep. voiceover job, so you get there in, in time. So Well, and, and it's funny, like I... Uh, what's the guy's? Um, Werner Herzog does a one-week film school that he mm, does, yeah. and one of, and the first thing he does on the first day, he says the most important thing you have to learn to be a filmmaker is to forge documents and pick locks, <laughs> yeah. because he believes that filmmakers to some degree have to be criminals. And as I said, the Orson, the ambulance story, mm-hmm. Orson shooting, uh, you know, oh, yeah. on his test shoot, Hoover going to China <laughs> when yeah. he was supposed to be doing a reconnaissance. Um, those are great stories about doing this, and to some degree, I agree. There are a lot. I mean, I shot on the Universal backlot without any permission. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, um, admitting that on a podcast. All right. Yeah. Well, it was 15 years ago, <laughs> okay. so I don't think they're going to do anything to me. Yeah, right. Um, but like, I do believe that that's true. And then there's this also thing where, you know, rules are there for a reason, Yeah. you know, and I've also seen Hoover risk people's lives, Yeah. you know, and that goes into, and th- this is where this is tough. <laughs> exactly. You know, so our declaration of principles. Oh, yeah. You don't want to make any promises, Mr. Kane. You don't want to keep. These will be kept. I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news honestly. I will also provide That's the second them. sentence you started with I. People are going to know who's responsible. And he sa- and it's funny, he, he's in the shadows as he reads, reads mm-hmm. these. And he says these promises are going to be kept. And I think the fact that we don't see his face and we see the faces of the other people is really important mm-hmm. because it is undermining at the moment of his most what should be his most principled, it is undermining everything that's happening. Yeah. Does Kane have principles? I think he thinks he has principles, sure. I definitely think he thinks he has principles. That's what I would say. Yeah. And I think that your question is, an, is, a, is a subjective question. So do I think he has principles as I'm watching the movie? Uh, yes, but I think he also has uh, an incredible ego born of a deep well of insecurity that overrides all those principles at critical moments throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a really, as tough we all one. are, yeah. we are slaves to our insecurities and yeah. our issues yeah. when it comes to our principles. Well, and it's an interesting thing going like, does it, does the motivation matter? Mm. You know, if you're doing a good thing, but you're doing the good thing because you want someone to like you, mm. does it matter? Mm. And sometimes I think it does. Many people become famous musicians and actors because they, they want to love. get yeah. attention from the girls. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I do too. I mean, like, not just attention from the girls, but like, <laughs> but I mean, sure, that's fun too. But like the, you know, 
I, I certainly like knowing that our podcast is enjoyed by people. Sure. You know, that's a big part of why I do it because people enjoy it. Okay. You know, so I know that's what makes me different. I just do it because I like doing it. If, and I like that people like it. I do like that people like it. I just enjoy doing it. Right. And that's where, that's my focus. Well, is. I'm both. Yeah. I do enjoy doing it. Right. Oh, I, no. Yeah. I know yeah, you, I, yeah. I wouldn't I do it if I do. But, but, and, and this is the, this is where you and Matt are more, you and Matt are more right. caring or like in that way. And I respect that. I'm just, I just enjoy doing it. Right. And I'm happy that there are people who want to do it with me. Right. So, yeah. And listening. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's like if you, if Kane could stay the Kane that he was in the beginning. Yeah. And if he got, if he could accept the love that he got and not continually need more and more control. Mm. And, and even if his motivation was still the same to get love. Yeah. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Because who this guy, I mean, this is what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? Um, and then, of course, he decides we are going to redo the front page of the paper again. <laughs> and this just makes me think about what it must have been like to work for Orson Welles. Yeah. The, the, having the boy genius who is brilliant and impetuous and impatient and demanding and yells at people and makes you do it over and over and over again mm-hmm. in some ways that are brilliant and awesome and in some ways probably that were crazy and horrible. Yeah. You know. And here he is doing it to uh, to this newspaper, and the paper goes out. Um, and oh, one more thing we should say: Leland wants a copy of that paper. Yep. I'd like to keep that particular piece of paper myself. I have a hunch it might turn out to be something pretty important—a document. Sure. Like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and my first report card at school. Biggest like, foreshadowing I've ever seen yeah. in a movie, yeah. Yeah. Um, but motivated, totally yeah, motivatable. Sure, of course. Because at this moment, mm-hmm. Jed Leland really does think that his friend Charlie is a hero. Is that what you, you, you think? I do. You okay. don't think so? No. I think he knows that his friend is a flawed person. And yeah. I think he's no, seen actually, him, you're right. I think he's seen him do what he thinks is great, and but for attention for the love, for the ego, because Leland knows him so well. So I think Leland takes that because he knows that it's going to come in handy at some point. Now, oh, is it overt? I, I, yeah, I don't no, know. Yeah, I don't but, know if I go that far. I think you're, because he does call out the thing about the second sentence you started with I. Right. So that's he what definitely I'm does know. He knows that. He knows. The other thing that's interesting about Leland's having fun. Sure. Because he's old money. This doesn't matter to him. Yes. Is he broke? And he comes from the, like you said, he comes right. from the family, debts, blah, blah, blah. But he's used to this. He doesn't need to prove himself because he's already established by his name. He's known already. The Lelands are probably very well known in society. Oh, sure. The Canes are not, or a Cain is not until he builds his name. Yeah. And so Cain's great-great-granddaughter or grandson or grandson would be, uh, you know. Well, and Leland, I think, has a built-in disrespect for... um, the establishment because he's been a part of it. Sure. And he gets to hang out with this guy who's going to poke holes in it all the time. Right. And I think he's having a lot and he wouldn't get to do any of this. Right. If he weren't Kane's best friends, because exactly. he would have nothing, you know? Uh, so he's having a ball also. Uh, and then at the very end, we have another close up of Kane's smile. I hate that stupid scene. It's the only thing that in the film that I wish if I could go back and edit it and Robert Wise, this a little bit more, I would take out that smir- that smile, close-up oh, yeah. smile, because it's so fake. It's the most fake moment. Hmm. And I wonder, 
I want to believe that uh, Wells left it in there to show that mm. even Kane doesn't 100% believe what he's doing in that moment or sees through his own facade. Um, but it's uh, it's such a uh, untruthful moment. When mm. Wells is incredible bringing Kane to life through every other second in the movie. Well, it's interesting, too. One of the things Wells doesn't like is close-ups. And there are very few oh, of them in the film. Well, that makes and sense. that's one of them. Mm-hmm. He hated his face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's such an ugly man. <laughs> he was not. And that's the crazy thing yeah. about it. Uh, but he always liked to take, he always liked the prosthetic stuff with his nose in almost every film. He was yeah. In. yeah. Um, so we see that the, the circulation of the Inquirer is 26,000. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to go over to the Chronicle, which has a much, much higher circulation. Yeah. We're going to do this crazy time transition with the reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this photo of the best newspaper man in the world. And we hear Wells talking about he's like a kid in the candy store. And we walk into frame and now we're taking their picture in real time, which makes no sense. (laughs) That Six years later, these guys are wearing the same clothes and take exactly the same picture. But it is a perfectly executed time transition. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is also when Hearst went to New York to open up the Examiner in New York. He went over to Pulitzer, which had the biggest newspaper in New York, and bought out his entire editorial staff. Good God, man. You know, you got a lot of money. You can do it. And now we go right into a big party. Yes. And this is, again, the same set as the Inquirer's, uh, the newspaper, the newsroom. Oh. They just reuse it over and over and over Hmm. again. Um, And one of the things we should say is that the ceilings are made out of muslin, so they can shine lights through it. All the microphones are up in the ceiling, so that's how they're recording sound. And and part of that is so we can have these low angles, and and the ceilings are fairly low, so Mm -hmm. you get this real sense of kind of claustrophobia. Mm Um, seems like a fun party. Yeah. Got some ice sculptures, some dancing girls. <laughs> a nice song. Nice song written by Bernard Herman. You sell a bag of peanuts in this town. They run <laughs> a song about you. <laughs> um, and I love that he's still campaigning. Are we going to attack Spain or are we not? Wow. Um, I am not overdressed. <laughs> <laughs> Long faced, overdressed anarchist. That's hilarious. Um, oh, I want to say one thing about oh, yeah. the song. Sure. One thing about the song. The lyric is, who buys the food, who buys the drinks, who thinks that dough was made to spend and acts the way he thinks. Those lyrics have a lot to do. So, yeah, because a lot of this movie is about him buying affection and yes. doing what he wants to do and forcing the world to do what he wants when because he's paying. Because he thinks he knows best. Right. Right. When really he just spends best. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, this is one of the things about money. Um, uh, and as we're doing this song, and Kane is in the middle of the dancing girls, and this is sort of, and getting... we're caught up in it as an audience. Oh yeah, we're so caught up in this. We're in love with this guy. He's so vibrant, so fun. And then Leland, of course, because Leland is the conscience of the movie. Yes, Leland has this exchange with Bernstein. Yep. Right? And then Leland asks the questions: Do we stand for the same things the Chronicle stands for? And part of me goes, What exactly does the Inquirer stand for? Right. You know, he's manufacturing a war. Mm-hmm. He's well, the Declaration of Principles is what I thought they stood for. Yeah, but do we have any principles? I, well, I don't know yet. Right? Yeah, we I don't mean, know this is yet. A, uh, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. Yeah, and we end with there's always a chance uh, that they'll change Mr. Kane. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course we that's, already that's yeah. the thing, and we already know that's true mm-hmm. because we went from young Kane fighting the Traction Trust yeah. to juxtaposed immediately with fifty year old Kate who's lost everything, who is part of the establishment. Yeah, yeah. so we know that what Leland says is ex- in fact exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. He is going to be the establishment. Yeah. Um, 
we cut to uh, a the still back in this newsroom now filmed with stuff purchased from all over Europe, statues and paintings and all sorts of stuff, mm -hmm. which definitely is based on William Randolph Hearst. Yep. When his mom took him to Europe when he was a kid, first of all, he said he wanted to buy Windsor Castle so he could move into it. <laughs> and then he told his mom he wanted to buy the Louvre. Oh, Jesus. And she encouraged him. She's like, oh, that's great. And that's where this obsession with buying stuff started with wow. Hearst. And if you and, and I know you haven't been to Sam Simeon, mm -mm. uh, but it is crazy. Did you have to pay to get in? Yeah. How much is it? Uh, tour, you know, it's a tour. So it's, you oh. know, like 20 bucks for the oh, that's tour great. or something. Just 20? I, I do not have the prices at my fingertips. <laughs> well, just because you went recently. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's not that expensive. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to make a pilgrimage. How you, far away is it? Uh, it's uh, it's exactly where the wedding we were just at is. Three hours away. It's one mile north of that wedding okay. that we were just at. All right. So it's just north of Cambria. Um, and it is bizarre okay. because uh, the thing about San Simeon, well, let's hold off on that. Sure, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, he's sending all this stuff back from Europe, and now he says he's buying the world's biggest diamond. I didn't know Charlie was collecting diamonds. <laughs> he's not. He's collecting people who are collecting diamonds. Anyway, he ain't only, only buying statues. <laughs> I love Bernstein and Leland. He's great. They're, a great, they're both great. They're yeah. a great uh, duo. Mm -hmm. And we cut to a little bit later, and Charlie has arrived back, and he's in this white suit. And we have a, a cup yeah. that's written a dedicated to him with this beautiful shot with all of the... Uh, the faces. Mm -hmm. um, Charlie pulls up in this carriage. He's wearing a white suit. He's got a mustache. He's obviously, you know, it's a few years older. Yep. And he comes in looking for the first time, I think, a little nervous and awkward yep. and flustered. Yep. And he has a social announcement to hand to the social writer. Right. I've got a little uh, social announcement. I wish you wouldn't treat it any differently than you would any other social announcement. Uh, Mr. Kane. Mr. Kane, on behalf of all the employees of the Inquirer... Mr. Bernstein, I, thank you very much, everybody. I, I'm sorry. I, I can't accept it. No. Goodbye. Uh, and the scene is great. Again, it has this great momentum, the great comedy. He goes out. He forgets to get the cup. He goes back in. He gets yeah. the big trophy. He goes down. And as they're looking out the window at the woman who's in the carriage, the social editor reads that it's a marriage announcement. Right. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Monroe Norton announced the engagement of their daughter, Emily Monroe Norton, to Mr. Charles Foster Kane. Huh? Come on. Emily Monroe Norton. She's the niece of the President of the United States. President's niece, huh? Before he's through, she'll be a president's wife. Seems like this is going to work pretty well. <laughs> um, and now we go back to Bernstein. And the first thing he said was, Emily was no rosebud. Mm -hmm. Because she was uh, no pushover. Yeah. Right. right. I guess. Um, and I love the line where the reporter says, it didn't end well, did it? And Bernstein says, it ended. And there was Susie. That ended too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and Bernstein wants, uh, says, you really need to go talk to Jed Leland. But he's lost touch with him, which I think is so sad. He doesn't mm. know where Leland is. Because without Kane to connect them, they're not friends anymore. I think that happens. Yeah. yeah. So let's go see Jed Leland. Mm -hmm. Something I didn't know was that this was shot out of schedule. Oh, okay. Yeah, that this was a rush. And the reason they did it was because Orson Welles broke his ankle. 
Oh. Um, is that Orson Welles, when chasing boss Jim Geddes down the stairs, <laughs> fell and broke his ankle. And so suddenly they had to shoot this thing with Joseph Cotton really fast. And Cotton was never happy with the makeup. He, he didn't like the way this scene was shot. It was shot at the last minute and he wasn't happy with it. Really? Yeah. And the scene is great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he is thinner. Mm. So it's interesting. <laughs> He's so, I, I, it's, it's funny how, how, how people approach playing old, older versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And Cotton's is very funny. It is. He is a, he is a charming, uh, cantankerous old guy he still has that twinkle in his eye yeah yep. and it says i mean he's got a sense of humor about everything i mm -hmm. think you know when you know from his origins that you kind of have to yeah um and i i love you know he, there's just one of the hard things by the way about doing this show was i wanted to write down every single line i'm sure you did because yeah i know they're, they're so good i can remember absolutely everything young man that's my curse that's one of the greatest curses ever inflicted on the human race memory memory yep. yeah yeah, that's an amazing thing to say. Yeah. And he, he lays out so much. I think more of the secrets about who Charles Foster Koenig's get laid out by Jed Leland in this scene than anybody else. Because Jed knows him the best. I was his oldest friend, and as far as I was concerned, he behaved like a swine. Not that Charlie was ever brutal. He, he just did brutal things. Maybe I wasn't his friend, but if I wasn't, he never had one. What does that mean? That's the separation. He wasn't intentionally a mean person. He did mean things because he felt that there was a bigger principle at stake and other people were subject to that principle. So he did brutal things. He wasn't a brutal person. That's the difference. And I think that's really important to understand why people still love him at the end of the movie. And yeah. Leland, for all his shit about talk, for all his stuff he talks about, uh, uh, Kane. You can tell he still loves him and he misses his friend. Same and, and Bernstein definitely does. Absolutely. And Susie as well, which we find out later. But yeah. Well, he misses him and he has tremendous anger for him. He really does. Tremendous. I mean, because he, he was, saw the potential of what he could be yeah. and he blew it. Well, and he, he betrayed him. You know, I mean, yeah. like he, he he put real true love and friendship into this mm -hmm. relationship and really didn't get it back. You know, when he says this thing of, you know, he never gave anything away. He just left you a tip. That is a that is a lot of a line. Oh, yeah, man. He left you a tip. Right. You know? Because people were, they weren't real to him. They were commodities. Yeah. Yeah, on yeah. some. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is he, Kane, and this is the lesson he never quite learns through the whole movie, is that he, in addition to feeling like he couldn't get love, he does not know how to love. Right. You know, and those are connected. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know how to really truly give of himself. He can only give you, leave you a tip. Right. Yeah, I'm going to just quote more from Jed, Jed Leland. He had a generous mind. I don't suppose anybody ever had so many opinions. But he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane. He never had a conviction except Charlie Kane in his life. I suppose he died without one. It's been uh, pretty unpleasant. Wow. Yeah. He really, he just... He nails him. He nails him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then he's good. Let's find out about Emily. Yeah. Went to dancing school with her. <laughs> oh, I, wow. I was very graceful. I was very graceful. Yeah. <laughs> She's like all the girls I knew in dancing school. Very nice girl. Very nice. Emily was a little nicer. <clears throat> he slept with her. You think so? Absolutely. That's what that means in the parlance of that time. <laughs> all the girls were nice. 
Emily was just a little bit nicer. That means that he either got a he either made out with her, or got a hand job, or something. Like I'm just I'm not I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. No, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Like this is how men sp- spoke about sex at that time. It was that kind, especially men of old money and that kind of like uh, upbringing of a little more properness to them. This is how they alluded to sex, and it's exactly what he meant. All, all the girls were nice. Emily was a little nicer. Yeah, yeah. And we go to see breakfast. Mm-hmm. First of all, we do this amazing dissolve where Tolan is turning down the lights on one side yes. so that, that the image can fade up, and then he turns down the lights on the other side so we mm-hmm. can do this very slow superimposition. And we go into this you know, two-minute sequence where we see their entire relationship. Yeah. And again, it's a completely new kind of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. We've had newsreels. We've had flashbacks. We've had hard cuts. We've had all this. Thing. Now we're going to have this montage yeah. of these scenes. And the first one we see, and by the way, they shot these in reverse order because they're essentially removing old age makeup. Yeah. So that rather than putting on makeup. So they started with the oldest scenes and then they shot the youngest scenes last. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which makes perfect sense. And it's very smart. And we see them first in a two shot and they are romantic. Yes. And suave and tuxedos. They've been up all night and there is a sexual chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. And the decision at the end is to not go to work. And to basically, they're saying we're going to go have some more sex, which is newlyweds, right? They're newlyweds. It's very sweet. Yeah. I absolutely adore you. Oh, Charles, even newspaper men have to sleep. I'll call Mr. Bernstein, have him put off my appointments until noon. What time is it? I don't know. It's late. It's early. Once again, this is another color on Kane. Yeah. We haven't seen this yeah. color on Kane. And there's real genuine yep. passion and attraction in sure. this scene. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then we go a little bit later and uh, still fairly young, but she kept, the Inquirer kept her waiting. Mm-hmm. But this is some attention that's going to build. And by the way, we should say this is Ruth Warwick in a great, great performance. Her first film. Yeah. She talks about this in her behind the scenes. And she had a wonderful time as, as opposed to Common Gore. She uh, Wells did not persecute her. Wells did not batter her. Wells did not do anything of that nature to her, and she enjoyed her experience on the set. She talks about it, love it glowingly mm. all the time, oh. and how much she revered what Wells was able to do and right. how wise he was. And she she has this really great comment when she talks about it because everyone says you're so like proper, you're so like composed and proper and like for such a young age, it's amazing. And she said, yeah, because I hadn't let a man come into my life to ruin me yet. Wow, that is a that is an actual interview. Wow. She says in any, and she doesn't say it in any way that's bitter or angry about it. She's very factual and sweet. And you're just like, damn. Like I would have liked to have known Ruth Warwick. She seemed like she was a cool yeah. like person to know. You yeah. Know? So although Emily, on the other hand, yeah, does not right, seem so right. nice. And and uh, you know, you know, in the first scene, he puts off the inquirer to spend mm-hmm. time with her. Yeah. Now he's putting off her to spend time with the inquirer. Right. And then in the next one, we hear that he's attacking the president. You mean Uncle John? I mean the president of the United States. He's still Uncle John. He's still a well-meaning fathead who's running a pack of high-pressure crooks around his administration. This whole oil scandal. He happens to be the president, Charles, not you. That's a mistake that will be corrected one of these days. Betraying his desire to go. Yeah. Right. To, 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 clearly, this guy has ambitions to yes. the president. And then in our next one, we, things have gotten even more severe. And now we're talking about Bernstein's toy. Mm-hmm. You, Mr. Bernstein, sent Junior the most incredible atrocity yesterday, Charles. I simply can't have it in the nursery. Mr. Bernstein is apt to pay a visit to the nursery now and then. Does he have to? Which I always wonder, what the hell is it? Probably a, a dreidel or a Jewish star of day. Like, what? what oh, you're Jewish, Steve. What oh, would I you give as? Would, would I don't it be get the sense specifically. I don't Jewish? think there's a. I don't think he gave a Jewish toy. Really? I think he gave a low class toy, but I don't know. 
I don't know what a Jewish. But why toy would is. she be? Well, why would she be anti-Semitic in this scene? Well, I think she if is it's a anti- toy. Well, I don't think she's. I well, so first of all, I don't know. Okay. Like my sense is, is that everything in that nursery is perfect and clean, and everything is just right. Right. And he brought some ugly uh, thing that clashes. That's how I've always felt. About really? It. Yeah. I don't know what a Jewish, but I do think that her she also objects to him because he's Jewish. I think that's the subtext of what she's right. saying. So the atrocity. What would he have brought? That's what I would. I've always wanted to know. What's the atrocity that he brought? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe uh, it's open to respect. Have, yeah, sure, I don't, it's I don't open know. To, yeah, um, it could be a, a toy, but it could be also something. I thought something Jewish. Yeah, I can't imagine that he would. I don't know that because I like you wouldn't bring something Jewish to your Christian boss's kid. Well, maybe you would because you're friends for so long. Maybe you know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but when Kane says Mr. Bernstein might come to the nursery sometime, and she says, "Does he have to?" and he says, "Yes." This is probably my the what I think is the purest moment of him being a good guy. Yeah. In my mind. Yeah. This isn't him going I for how people will love me or think of me. It's right. like, no, Bernstein is actually a person I care about and he's going to come to the nursery. He's returning Bernstein's loyalty to him. I, I yeah, this one feels genuine in a yeah. way that a lot of the other ones don't. I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah. And then uh we go a little bit later and they are nuts. And and, and she says People will think what I tell them to think. <laughs> so great Wow With the pipe Yeah And the arched eyebrow Is yeah. he already sleeping With Susan Alexander At this point uh, I think he is Or at least He it's, has been sleeping Around yeah. on her Yeah We're we're real close to it mm-hmm. And in our final shot They're in silence mm-hmm. She's reading the Chronicle And he's reading the Inquirer And I want your film Or people who are listening to this Not just your film students But people who are listening to this To also watch the costume Oh like, This fantastic. is very important And the hair and the hair, right. Because she, when she starts out, her gown is open. You can see her breasts, like the beginning of her breast line. Her hair is much more playful. And then as the scene progresses, she covers up more and more until she has her moment of defiance. Then her shirts are, then her gown is back open again. And in the, in the last shot, she's very much a rich, regal person uh, and has found her strength in that marriage. And you know she is... She understands that this is a loveless marriage now that they're in. It is very cold. Yeah. It is. It becomes right. a very cold space. And she finds her, her strength in the marriage, yeah. Not that she was weak in the marriage, but she yeah. finds her defiance. And Definitely defiance. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then we go back the same way we came in through this long dissolve, back to Jed Leland. Mm-hmm. And again, man, he's got him nailed. Love. That's why he did everything. That's why he went into politics. It seems we weren't enough. He wanted all the voters to love him, too. That's all he really wanted out of life was love. That's Charlie's story, how he lost it. You see, he just didn't have any to give. He loved Charlie Kane, of course, very deeply. And his mother, I guess he always loved her. Boom. Man, Leland, this is, this is you know, this is it. This is as close as you get to understanding who Kane yeah. is. Right. And the mother we, thing is huge, Steve. Yeah. You're right. And now, and now we get to Susie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who Kane described as a cross-section of the American public. That's a fucked up way to describe your girlfriend, man. <laughs> listen, I, I said this on the commentary, which people will listen to next week, but like, or, or two weeks from now, but like... Um, for me, it's very similar to what how people uh, saw the Mia Farrow Frank Sinatra marriage. Oh right, yeah. They, the, uh, I think it was Dean Martin or Sammy said. Well, it wasn't Sammy. It was Dean Martin or someone said that Frank essentially married his audience 
because he wanted to stay relevant. He wanted to stay young. And it's not coincidental. When he marries Mia Farrow, he tries to do Fifth Dimension music, tries to do the Beatles music. Right. But much like much like Bobby Darren tried to do If I Were a Carpenter, these are lou- essentially glorified lounge singers. Not not not, not the Bash Sinatra, but like Sinatra's my is one of my idols, but he is a singer, he is a concert singer, he's a lounge singer, he's that kind of thing. You know, he's singing standards. Right. For them to start singing protest songs in the standard style just didn't make sense. And they it was them trying to stay relevant to their audience. Him mar- marrying Mia Farrow is that just like Kane trying to stay young. It's a midlife crisis or whatever old he's yeah. trying to marry a, or trying to be with this young woman. Well, and it's this other is that she represents that was something to him. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's. I think that's all. I think all of that stuff is going on, and I think even, uh, on even a crazier level with Charles Foster. Yes, true. There is so much more that he is trying to get out of this relationship with Susan Alexander. Mm-hmm. Very little of it actually has to do with who she is right. as a person. Right. She represents a thing. Yes. She's got a toothache. He got sprayed by mud. Yeah. She kind of laughs at him, and she offers very nicely to bring him up to her room to help clean him up. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he gets there, what is the first thing he does? Closes the door. He closes the door. That is not acceptable. <laughs> she makes it stay open. Right. Um, and now he puts that powerful Orson Welles slash Charles Foster Kane charisma laser beam of charisma on her yeah and you could see it man it's like exploding off the screen oh yeah Yeah. absolutely from wiggling his ears to the hand puppets Mm -hmm. and and you know these are all tricks that wells pulled out this is this is all oh yeah this is his bag of tricks he's a magician he's a magician yeah he was a magician Um, in life um and and what is the thing that most attracts him to her that she doesn't know who he is yeah and she likes him even though he, she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. That's a profound thing. A lot of famous people talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of famous people, they talk about how they have, it, it's very difficult to trust people once you become famous because you don't know what their intention, when you meet new people, you don't know what their real intentions are. And so they trust people that don't know who they are even more uh, when they first meet them than they do people who don't. I went on a date one time with a famous, uh, not famous, but a known actress right. who was in a sitcom back in the 80s and 90s. Right. We were having a really nice time, the first half an hour, 45 minutes of conversation. Then I just let it drop because she says something. And I go, but you're who you are. I'm sure the agencies. And she goes, she stops eating mid-bite. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and she goes, you know who I am? And I go, well, yeah, I, I watch TV shows in the 80s. Yeah, I know. But it doesn't, it's not why I'm out here with you. I, I think you're attractive. And she goes... Oh, and the date completely changed. Yeah. She became cold and aloof. And by the end, she said to me, she was walking. She's like, I don't think I'm going to see you. I don't want to date people who know me. I just, I don't think I trust. I've never been able right. to trust. And it's just that thing. Even really the low sad. level fame that she has, it has that that uh, thing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, because you build up knowledge about right. it. You already have a pre-relationship with the, with the famous person. Kind of, yeah. You know? It's true. And, and all these opinions in that, yeah, they don't get to be. Well, and the thing about wealth, too, is that people are drawn to wealth yeah. and, and not the personality. Mm-hmm. And so, like, he's going, oh, you're just liking me yeah. for me. Right. That's pretty neat. And then she does just the worst thing she could ever possibly do, which is she says that her mom wanted her to be an opera singer. Yeah. And, man, he just jumps on that he just laser focus yeah exactly yeah and and, you know because he has this unresolved relationship with his own mother and maybe i can resolve the relationship with my own mother by resolving her relationship with hers yes if she can fulfill her mother's expectation then maybe my mother will somehow love me 
I mean, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Maybe some weird stuff that goes on here. And he was on his way to go look at his mother's things. That's right. So all of it has a lot of resonance throughout the scene. She says, you know what mothers are like? And he says, yes, I know. Mm. I really wonder how much he saw of his mother after that scene. I think zero. That's how it feels. That he never saw his mother after he yeah. sent her away. Yeah. The question is, did she die? Did he try to yeah. get a hold of her? Like, what is the situation? I don't know. Did she purposely... I think she died. Did she purposely have Thatcher, like, remove like remove any, any ability to contact her? Like, what is it? Yeah. I don't know. She might have died, yeah. Yeah. Just like Wells' mother died. And as we're sitting in this apartment with her, yeah. one of the things we see sitting in the in the background on a shelf is the snow globe. Yeah, man. The snow globe, it came from her apartment. I think this is what solidifies his connection to her. He's on his way to see his mom's, yep. to go look through his mom's things. The snow globe is important to him because of what it represents and what it symbolizes. And he may take it as a sign that this is a person that he should be pursuing. Yeah. He asks her to sing for him. Yeah. And he listens to her sing, but he's not really listening. No. You know, because if he really listened, he would go, she's not that good a singer. Right. But, and we sit there and the, we fade out. And we fade back in, and we're in a different apartment yeah. that's much nicer. She's dressed in nicer clothes. Framed in the background is the bed, mm -hmm. and we know that they've had an ongoing affair. Yes. Again, beautiful, beautiful storytelling. She was a little nicer. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> All right. And we immediately go to a campaign rally. Yes. With uh, Leland. Mm -hmm. and, he's and again, this is how they create this idea that this is a much bigger movie than it is. Yep. All we see is a very, very small little speech that Leon's making in front of people. Then we cut to the giant poster oh, and Orson speaking, and the camera pulls back to this huge <sighs> arena, all of which is a composite shot. Mm -hmm. That's a matte painting. There's, it's, there's probably like 12 people in this actual shot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's a painting with all the people, and they're flickering lights underneath the, the matte painting to make the illusion of movement wow. and Wells is composited in the middle and it looks like, wow, what a big movie and yeah. it's perfectly done. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's a fairly small scene. Well, it's almost like the beginning of Patton. Patton does that whole yeah. thing and you don't know Very much so. anybody that's in the audience. Yep. It's just him. Yep. Yeah. Just as Kane meets Susan Alexander, Hearst saw Marion Davies in a chorus line um, and he was uh, regularly would go to these, you know, they knew him there and he would regularly take the girls from the chorus line out and he saw Marion Davies and she just sparkled apparently. Mm -hmm. And he, he asked her out and she knew what she was in for. Right. You know what I mean? She knew this is a rich guy and she knew how to play it. And that that's, and that became this long-term relationship. Right. And as Kane is running for governor, uh, Hearst had been in Congress. He apparently showed up less to Congress than like any other congressman in the, in history. And uh, cause he thought that that, all those meetings and committee meetings and stuff weren't that important. And uh, he went after ran for all sorts of stuff yep. and never won anything. This is why businessmen should not be in pa in uh, political office hmm. for numerous reasons. Huh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, they don't show up to things. They're off golfing every fucking weekend. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <And> <sighs> all right. Bring it down. Sorry. Sorry, bud. Back to Kane. <laughs> and who do we have watching? We have uh, Jed Leland watching and you could see him trying to figure Kane mm -hmm. out in this scene. And it's always the same thing. Do I trust this guy or do I not? Yeah. Does he mean what he's going to say? And there's this whole thing of these promises, you know, and at first he didn't make any promises because he couldn't, uh, he wasn't going to, no, didn't have a chance. No one gave me a chance. I didn't make any campaign promises. And now he says, I'm not going to make any promises because I'm going to be too busy working to keep them. <laughs> That's a brilliant line. Yeah. 
And but the one thing we do know he's going to do is put Jim Geddes in jail. Yeah, that's the the boss governor, Jim boss Jim Geddes. Yeah. And we see uh, his wife Emily and their son watching from uh, the side, and we see way way up high. Boss Jim Geddes, Ray Collins looking down. Again, that's another composite shot. Shot So Ray Collins is shot in one place. Orson Welles down below is a different shot. The matte painting and then the people on the side of the stage, it's like four different shots wow. all composited together. This whole movie is filled, filled with these special effect shots that you never would notice. But do you think em no, Emily knows what's going to happen? Yes. So the whole time she's looking at him, you can tell Ruth is playing that level. You can play yep. Ruth is playing that. You can see in her eyes because she's not like excited for him and happy for the speech or anything. Like her son is doing that. Their son is doing that. But she's very composed just yeah. watching him. Yeah. Know? Well, and she says, is Pop Governor yet? And she says, not yet. Not yet. And what she knows is never. Right. She's never going to be governor. Right. And uh, we go outside uh, taking pictures and she calls for a taxi and he goes, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then she says, you've got to come with me. I, we've got a visit we have to make. And then she says the address. Yeah. His face immediately. His face is great. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is what this is. Yeah. And we head over to Susan Alexander. And he says, like, I'm surprised, like. Do you have the flair for the dramatic? Flair for the dramatic. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, of course, the worst thing happens is we show up at the house and the door opens and the maid opens the doors and says, come right in, Mr. Kane. Yeah. And then we know. Yeah. And she knows, that's for sure. We go upstairs, and there's Jim Geddes. Mrs. Kane, I don't suppose anybody would introduce us. I'm Jim Geddes. And it's funny. So Kane threatens to break his, I'm going to break your neck. Mm -hmm. and, and Geddes' response is, maybe you could do it, and maybe you can't. Do you think there's anything to Kane's threat? No. I don't think so either. I think he's used to, to browbeating people yeah. and uh, you know, inti I, trying to intimidate. I think if anything really got physical, Kane just crumbles. Yes, because Jim Gaddy's and the Ray Collins performance is a guy who's been on the streets. Yeah. He knows how to handle himself. And I, lo I love, he, you know, he calls, he calls him a gentleman and he says, I'm not a gentleman. Your husband's only trying to be funny calling me one. I don't even know what a gentleman is. And then he lays in a cane. And this is a, because what Getty seems to be is an honest crook. Yeah. You know what I mean? He knows who he is. He understands the system. Yeah. He's working the system to his benefit as a crook. Yeah. So... Uh, Wells or Kane singling him out breaks the system. Right. And it's him not going along with, once again, going against the establishment in his way. Well, and Kane has been playing dirty with him. Mm -hmm. And that is why he, he doesn't want to, he wouldn't have done this thing. Yeah. yeah. He, but because of the way Kane has attacked him, he's attacking back. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about the scene is all three people, none of whom have any reason to like each other, mm -hmm. uh, Gettys, Susan, and Emily are all on the same side. Mm -hmm. This is what you must do for di totally different reasons. And they're all telling him that you have to drop out of the race. Because mm -hmm. if this thing gets revealed, it's bad for Susan Alexander, it ruins her name. It's bad for the son. It's bad for Emily. It's bad for Kane. And it's not how Gettys wants to win. And it's bad for Gettys too. Yeah. yeah. He wants to actually just win the election. Right. Um, and they're all pushing him to quit. Um and Emily's like, okay, let's go. And she just expects that, of course, Charles is going to do what they say and mm -hmm. quit. And then he steps into the light. He's been in the shadows the whole time. Right. Um, he says, I'm staying here. I can fight this all alone. Charles, if you don't listen to reason, it may be too late. Too late? For what? For you and this public thief to take the love of the people of this state away from me yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Has anyone ever misread a situation more? Yeah. Right? And it's ironic because how could he not know the fickle nature of the public when he's manipulated the public so effectively with his newspapers? You know, that's what shocks me in this moment. A more pragmatic, intelligent person would not have fallen into this trap, you know, and would have just eaten it this time around, broke things off with Susan, work things out with Emily, and then try it again in four years. But, or two years, I'm not sure what the length of the time was uh, for running, but like, but in this moment, he chooses instead to all of a sudden become this principled warrior, like lean into the principles this way. Ish. This way. Yeah, right, ish, right. And so he thinks because the love he speaks about the love of the people which is of course going to come into play here when we when we get into the scene with with leland and and uh, kane but he is talking about the people in this way you know the love of the people the people love me and because he, he thinks he can manipulate the people well and it's it's this interesting what on, on so, did. so many levels because like what's, what's interesting i don't know if you ever read the fountainhead which is the Anne Anne Rans- Rans- yeah. yeah is that the gail whining character in the fountainhead is also a hearst Mm. And, he, and he falls into the same trap, yeah. which is he, you, you believe it's easy to get people angry and then you can get people to do what you want because they are angry. Right. But the, but you cannot control the anger. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is something we've seen in the current, the way politics are going mm. is once you rile people up, you think you can, you, you can get them to attack the people you want them to attack, mm-hmm. but you can't actually get them to do what you want to do in everything. Right. And that they, that that's going to take on a life of its own. And we've seen people destroyed by what they have created yeah you know and kane is a person he got them riled up so he just assumes i can control them in all ways but that is not in fact the case you cannot get them to do things that they don't want to do and this idea of control for kane is you know he says there's only one person in the world to decide what i'm going to do and that's me you know when you're so wealthy and so powerful you have the ability to live without compromise Mm -hmm. and that is not a good place to be right That's not good for you. No. Because none of us actually have total control over our lives. Mm -hmm. Control is an illusion. And if you try to exercise total control over your life, it just, it's self-destructive. Yeah. And this is, he is in a situation he cannot control, and yet he is trying to control it. Yep. And and Getty's response is just amazing. You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You're licked. Why don't you? Get out if you want to see me have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else I'd say what's going to happen to you, it would be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. And you're going to get more than one lesson. Getty says it's number two. Yeah. Um, and then Kane loses it. Yeah. Only really one of two times in the film where he just goes nuts. Mm-hmm. I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician! Trying to save himself! From the consequences of his crimes, Dennis, I'm going to send you to Sing Sing, Sing Sing, Dennis, Sing Sing, Sing Sing, Yeah, I love it. I, I will occasionally yell that in the car sometimes. <laughs> I will just like if someone cuts me off or whatever, I'll just as a way to not yell something nasty. I'll say that. Um, and, and it's amazing. And by the way, this is running on stairs where where he broke his ankle. Mm-hmm. And, and and then them just closing the door on him, and we walk away, and that uh, front of the building becomes the newspaper that we saw in the very opening. Right, and we have this exchange between Emily and Gettys where mm. she says, "He says, can I offer you a car or whatever?" So he does have. 
shades of being a gentleman. Absolutely. So he understands how to work within old money society, right? Because right. he he knew uh, he had this information. He could have dropped this information if he wanted to. Right. But he knows Kane has connections. Kane has uh, people with money connected to him. So he wanted to kind of give him the gentleman's way out, which is ironic. Right. Because he says, I'm not a gentleman. He's trying to give him the gentleman's way out. He won't take it because once this is Kane's hubris. This is his way of thinking he's some kind of idealistic warrior against the establishment. And he... It screws him in the end because he does. And he says that you're going to need more than one lesson yeah. because he knows this is a stubborn, stubborn man full of a lot of hubris. And so when he has this moment with Emily, it's him reestablishing, hey, I did this to him. I didn't do this to your community. There's yeah. a difference in that moment because yep. he still needs to stay elected and needs their money to stay elected. Absolutely. Well, and this is really the turning point in the film. Yep. This choice to... To let the affair with Susan Alexander yeah. to be to be exposed, this is self destructive. This is the first move by Kane where you see the beginnings of the downfall and the choice of no one's going to tell me what to do but me. I'm the only one who make decisions. You know, like the who you're not going to take the love of the people away from me. All of this stuff, mm -hmm. all of his insanity, his his loneliness, his pain, his inability to understand the reality his insensitivity to other people all of and his incredible sensitivity to his own emotional circumstances right. all of that is happening and the destruction begins here yes you know and this all happens before we and this is all chronologically happening before we have that scene with him and thatcher and bernstein yeah. Yeah. where he's lost everything and he's signing stuff over and you, you i could have been a great man all these kinds of things yeah right this and we know that's that's where we're heading because yes. we because because in the newsreel, everything was laid out at the beginning. We yeah. know where this is going to go. Yeah, exactly. So that, I think, is a good place to end <laughs> part one of our exploration of Citizen Kane. Yes, our two-hour part one exploration yeah. of Citizen Kane, yes. Yeah, I mean, we knew this was going to be big. We knew there was a lot of stuff here. And there I think, is. you know, as, as the movie's now going to turn, I think it's a good place to stop. And we're going to reconvene in one week's time to explore the second half of Citizen Kane. So take a little intermission. Take a little break. Mm -hmm. We want to thank you, as always, for listening to The Cinephiles. You can, uh, if you have comments, you can visit us on Facebook, search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Spotify. Yeah. You can leave comments for us on YouTube. You can leave reviews on iTunes. Um, you can buy Citizen Kane and any other movie we've ever reviewed on our website, cinephiles.net. You can go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles and become a supporter of the show. You can pick a movie we can do. You, you can hear other audio and we love interacting with you there. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can reach me at the Roca says on Twitter or Instagram and go to our Patreon because we are starting to, in 2018, one of our big, big focuses as we confront the next 11 months after we're done with this month of Kane is to start doing a lot of these films that you all are suggesting through the Patreon contribution. So if there's a film we haven't done that you really want us to do, become a patron, a patron rather, a patron, patron, and, and, <laughs> and, and suggest a movie and we will do it. So get on there, you know, start to donate. Well, we have to like it. Well, we're right. <laughs> we have to like it, right. And you, you give us a list of a few movies to choose from. So, And we will, we will definitely have a focus on it in 2018. So just let you know. So if you've been hesitating, going, well, I don't know. There's a lot of people that now is the time to join and, and start to contribute. And we will certainly uh, look at uh, doing one of your films. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that is it for this week. We will see you next week as the month of Cain continues on The Cinephiles. Sing, sing, caddies! <laughs> <laughs>